Well, what are the primary reasons that we tell other people stories about our lives? What are the primary reasons we tell people stories about our lives? Uh, first of all, it's varied, a lot of reasons. But the, I think the important thing you have to realize is that you do it almost every day. You will tell somebody something about your life. What happened to you in the morning? What happened to you yesterday? In other words, it's a primary way of connecting with people is just to tell them what happened in our lives. Even if someone says, how are you? Rather than saying, fine, I'm fine, except the other day, this is what happened. And then you have a little bit of your story. So the reason, getting back to your question, the reason we tell people stories about our lives are multiple. One is to connect. One is to be seen. Another is to actually hide. You can tell a story from your life and hide an aspect of yourself or the truth about yourself by telling another story. You can tell a story in your life to avoid what the conversation is about. You can tell a story in your life to get attention, to feel important. You can tell a story, a part of the story of your life to actually feel vulnerable and to get sympathy or empathy. So there's a long, wide range of reasons we sometimes intuitively, instinctively tell the stories from our life that tell what's going on. In fact, just before this interview, I won't go into them, but all of us, the four of us here, we're telling stories about our lives and what we've been through and what we're doing and all of that. And we, this happens all the time. But then you have to look at if you are intentionally telling a story. There's a story you are going to intentionally tell to one person, to a group of people, to a hundred people, a thousand people. Now you have to think about your question actually, Karen. Why? Why am I telling this story? Now if you want to tell a story and the story is fiction, you also have to ask yourself, why am I telling this story? But at the same time, you're also making up a story. You're creating a story. So there are two aspects of it. Why am I telling it? Which will affect what the story is and how I'm going to write it. But in autobiographical stories, that doesn't happen. Because there's something unique about an autobiographical stories like the ones you and I were discussing earlier. They have already been written because they have already happened. There's nothing to create. The events you told, the events I told earlier, those have happened. Now you look at the story and there is a few big questions. I want to tell this story. The first thing is, you have way more information than you need. You have all the details of the story, whatever the event was, everything that happened, everything that happened to you, around you, what other people did, what other people said, whatever that event was, there's way more information than you probably want to tell or could include. So it's more now like making a documentary film. You have all this footage and you want to extract from that footage a smaller story. So now you have an event what am I going to actually tell? But then you have to ask yourself, why am I telling this story? And this is where a lot of people struggle. Now, Elsha and I, when we're teaching our workshop on autobiographical storytelling called Write Your Life, one of the big things we deal with, we'll have anywhere from six to 15 students. Each of them has an autobiographical story that they've already written, just a three minute story. 
And it's really interesting that a lot of them have no idea, which is totally understandable, why they picked that story. They pick the story on their own. We just say pick an event and they are not clear why. And that's fine. There's no problem with that. That's very normal. I don't know why. So now part of the struggle is to explore yourself and explore your experiences and to learn while you're working on the story, learn about the story, learn about yourself and eventually learn why you picked that story. And there are some people we've worked with when they start to realize why they really picked that story, sometimes they're horrified. Oh, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to reveal that. And all I can say is, well, you picked the story. And they realize they did, that there's something inside going on. And my belief is that with autobiographical storytelling, there's an inner voice that's even helping you pick the story. So if you're going to meet with somebody, maybe for a job or a date or whatever, and you want to tell them something about yourself and say, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll tell him or her this story about what happened to me because it's really a great story. Do you know why you picked that story? Are you clear? And this all comes way before the question of how do you want the listener to receive the story? What do you want the listener to get from the story? How do you want the listener to see you as the storyteller or even to see you as the person in the story? And all of that is open and all of that is malleable even without changing the story. So the question now becomes, how do I tell the story so that I can project myself, present myself the way I want to? And how can I tell it so that the listener will receive the story the way I want them to receive it? Do you think people change their story and it's not by, it's maybe just by omission, by the way they're reading the room? Maybe they can tell either the room is welcoming or maybe it's not so welcoming. Mm -hmm. So they don't feel comfortable sharing certain aspects of their lives because they can, there's, a, there's an elephant in the room. They're not sure what it is but then they leave out certain details because they don't want to offend or, mm -hmm. or maybe they realize it won't be met with the same reception as if they were in another setting. Yes, now your, your question, Karen, was about do they change it I mean, in the process of telling it or... Now, are you talking about a stage presentation, like a solo show or something like that? Or a, a, TED or talk. a speech mm -hmm. or a TED Talk? Sure. Um, it's possible. It's very, very, very possible. It's very possible um, with the most skilled storytellers, they can change it in a heartbeat because they can tell a part of the story and get a reaction that tells them, oh, okay, I need to make a shift. I need to make an adjustment and go in a different direction because that's being received negatively or being misinterpreted. And so I'm gonna to have to clear that up and I'll shift, sometimes shift to another story or tell the story in a different way or reveal something different within the story than I had intended. I had intended to reveal this aspect of my character or my experience in the story. I'm going to shift that to something else and they can do it within the telling of the story. I have one small story, not an autobiographical story, but I was uh, working uh, actually with Val Kilmer many years ago on his portrayal of um, Mark Twain. 
Now he's not doing an autobiographical piece at all, but he's doing Mark Twain telling Mark Twain stories. So it's Mark Twain telling stories. And we were talking a lot about Hal Holbrook, who he admired a lot, who has a whole career doing Mark Twain. And one thing I didn't know that Val told me was that Mark Twain had 17 different shows he could do. All Mark Twain material that he had researched and, and explored. And so much material about Mark Twain that, and he would get a booking. He would say, okay, you're going to do this in, we want you to perform in New York. And based on the fact that it's New York, he would select certain material. You're going to do it in New York for this uh, organization. Aha, uh -huh. he'd do research on the organization and from all the wide range of material he would have, he would construct a different show specifically for them. If he was doing the South, it was a whole different show. So I think the, the whole thing of autobiographical storytelling, I think by instinct, when we're just having a conversation like you and I are, and we're telling a story, by instinct we will change. If we're not getting the reaction we want, we will shift. I know there are times I've started to tell a story in a group and a story and it got a little interrupted at one point and this happened to me just a few weeks ago and I went, that's it, my story's done. I know, there's no point in finishing the story. I could feel that the energy and the interest of the people was somewhere else and there was no point. So I just stopped. So you can do that. So I think there is... Um, that's very important. It's a great question because we are telling our own stories. We're actually revealing something about ourselves rather than someone asking me, what's your screenplay about? And I tell them that story. Well, that's not an autobiographical story at all. That's a fiction story. And I'll stick to whatever the story is and hope that they like it. But when I'm telling an autobiographical story. I'm actually revealing bits and pieces of me, one little piece after another, after another, after another. And I know the times that I've done some rather long stories, totally improvised, long autobiographical stories about my experiences in Hollywood and things like that. And it's been a speech that I've agreed to do. I will shift and change the tone of it, even based on the reactions. And sometimes the reaction is I'll say something and I hear a reaction that I wasn't expecting, which means they know exactly what I'm saying. This is a, you know, it's an inside joke. They got it. Okay, then I will keep going in that direction because that is supporting what I want to reveal. Do you think there are regional autobiographical stories? So let's say someone in LA may tell an autobiographical story that's more career-based, whereas mm -hmm. in some small town in another part of the US, it might be more about their family and how long their families had the land or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I'm just generalizing here, but I was wondering, is, is autobiogra autobiographical storytelling more regional-based? In, in terms of the people who act, now you're talking about who are doing it more or less professionally, you, you mean? Um, I guess in, in what we select to reveal mm -hmm. or leave out. Mm -hmm. Well, again, I'm going to take your two examples. You have the LA story, which you said is career-based or industry-based or whatever, and somewhere in the Midwest, it's more about family. My um, belief is, and I'm pretty sure I might, the audience in LA would rather hear the family story. The audience in the Midwest would rather hear the the industry story. Interesting. In other okay. words, who who because the the 
to do a, a story, a lot of stories about the industry in LA, we go, I've heard that, I've heard, <laughs> I lived that, you know, that's nothing new, but for someone to be telling about being raised in Arkansas, you know, and working on a farm, I go, I, I wanna hear that because that is not part of my experience. I want that experience, I want to learn from that. So again, that's judging the audience, assessing the audience, and will what I am talking about resonate with them in some way, or will it offend them in some way? If you do a one-person show in LA about the struggles of becoming a famous actress, most people won't go. <laughs> I, got to say, we, we, I know, we know that story. We've heard that story so many times. Well, Judy, the movie Judy, though, yeah. because you're seeing another side of it, which is another side. The, the happy-go-lucky side of what pe most people probably want to project. Yeah. They'll go for that one, yeah. you know, but I think that's because you sh that person's revealing, you know, Renee Zellweger's character was, she was revealing these demons that we don't always get access to. Yeah, and she's to. revealing the demons within a very famous icon that we know. And so we want to know more. And, and you're right, that film shows us more about who Judy really was and less, actually less about her career. I mean, her career is in there, but it's more about the demons she was struggling with, which is fascinating. She did an yeah. excellent job. Yeah. yeah. What makes a great story? What makes a great story? You know, Karen, <laughs> that question is huge. That's what drives this entire industry, is what makes a great story. I think a couple of things for me, and it has to be personal because I think different people have different opinions of what is a great story or a great film or whatever. But a great story is a story about a very, um, ordinary human being who's faced with extraordinary challenges and goes through an extraordinary transformation trying to survive or get back to where they were or to find their way to some new place. So there's a journey, there's a, there's a great journey that that person personally goes on. To me, that, that's what makes a great story. Great story to me is a story about relationships, about the struggle uh, this is obviously very personal because this is my preference, the struggle in relationships, not just the struggle of the two individuals or three or four individuals and in trying to achieve what they want to achieve, but the struggle we all have as human beings just relating to each other and being open with each other, being honest with each other, getting what we want from each other, giving what we want to each other, forming some kind of relationship and how difficult that is, how perilous it is, how fragile it is, and how quickly it can fall apart. A good example of that is marriage story, which is not, which is like a beautiful, wonderful, happy marriage which is falling apart. And sometimes, at least my experience watching that film, I'm going, why? Why is it falling apart? Well, because it's that fragile. And I think that, you know, there wasn't a big violation in the middle of it that created this falling apart. <clears throat> Those kind of stories are what make, for me, make great stories. Then in the storytelling, the telling of the story, what makes a great story is when I'm surprised. I love it when I'm surprised, when there's a point where the story's going on and what we all do when we see um, a story ha happening is we all in our minds consciously or unconsciously anticipate or 
predict where it's going to go. I, oh, I can see where this is going to go, or this is going to happen, or because he did that, she's going to do it. Oh, I can see it. And many times we're right, but then there are those moments when it just does a total reversal, and we didn't see it coming. We didn't see it coming. And what that does, those moments, those turning points that are so startling, understandable, but startling, just are not expected. And then they're not magical, it's not science fiction or anything like that, it's just not expected. That moment opens up something for us and where we can see deeper into who those characters really are. So we get greater insight into these characters and their struggles and their problems. And that's the beauty of a well-told story. Why do you think some people resonate with one story over another? So someone could see, well, we, sounds like we both saw Judy, we both liked it. Mm -hmm. I thought it was, was excellent, as tragic as it was. Mm -hmm. But some other people could see it and say, eh, I'm not impressed. Why do you think one person thinks a story is great versus another sees it and says, nothing special well, here? Well, I think it all comes to, and Elsha and I have had this a couple of times, where we'll sit side by side at a movie and Elsha, who's right over here, <laughs> Elsha will love the movie and I don't, or vice versa. Now, it's only because we're two different people. That it doesn't, it's still the same, it's still the same movie, it's still the same story. But getting back to your question, why what makes why do people resonate with certain stories? I think it all comes down to projection. Because as we're watching a story, one thing I'm very keenly aware of for myself and for everybody else, when we watch a story, we project ourselves into the other characters. In fact, and we do it when we read a script or read a novel, we do the same thing. But when we watch a movie, we do the same. We project ourselves. And the way we participate in the portrayal of that character, we get involved with that character, we care, we have empathy or we have disgust, we have some kind of emotional connection with each character. And so we go on the journey with them. Now, if we watch a movie like Judy and someone watches that and there's no way for that individual who's watching it to project himself or herself into that character because there's no common ground. There's nothing, not that you have to be an actress or a singer or in Hollywood, but do you aspire to do anything artistic? Do you have you know, these demons? That, is there anything within, if there's nothing within that character that they can project themselves into and attach themselves to, then they're not going to like the film because it is not speaking to them. Nothing wrong with the film, it just doesn't speak to them. And they could like another film, like a Transformer film, which they think is brilliant, and I could go, I don't get it because that I can't project myself into that world. So there's a world and there are characters that we have to project ourselves into and get involved and engaged with. And if we can't, then we'll just sit back and watch the movie and wonder what the whole fuss is all about. You are now working on something called the Travis Technique for Autobiographical Storytelling? The Travis Technique for Autobiographical Storytelling. Yes, that's a long title. <laughs> What is it about? What is it about? Well, it's, um, it's about autobiographical storytelling, obviously. And where it comes from, I have to go back and give you a little history of this because you made it sound like we're just starting. This, this has been going on for about 30 years. Um, and about 30 years ago, through circumstance, I got involved with helping develop and directing a one-person show with Paul Link, 
which became um, Time Flies When You're Alive. This, that story, uh, which became a stage play, um, was the story of Paul's wife who got breast cancer and eventually died from breast cancer. And it was the story of that whole journey that he went on with his wife and his children while she was fighting breast cancer. And without going into more detail, because there's a lot of detail to it, it's a very powerful story. It's a very powerful love story. It's a, it's a very sad story. It's a very tragic story. It's a very heroic story. And Paul was a friend of mine, and I knew Francesca, and when he said he wanted to um, write a play, because he and I and another friend of ours, Dennis Redfield, had created several plays together that we had done. He said he wanted to create a play about their life together and her death at home because she refused to go to hospitals and stuff like that. And I remember saying to him, this was only a week after she died, I remember saying to him, fine, okay, but let's talk about it later. Let's talk about it after the memorial service. The memorial service for Francesca was going to be in a few days. It was actually at John Ritter's home in Brentwood. We were all there. It was a beautiful, out on the back lawn, you could see the mountains and a lot of white balloons. You can imagine a white piano. People played music. People read poetry. It was very sad. But it was all this tribute to Francesca. And then Paul was going to speak last. And Paul, with their one-year-old child, she had a child while she was fighting cancer, which is a big part of the story. But that... Rosie, that one-year-old child, in his arm, he got up and started to talk. And he's, the first thing he says is, I want to tell you about my best friend. And within a few minutes, he had everybody there laughing as he was telling this story. And I'm watching him, and I'm going, oh my God, this is amazing. And afterwards, I talked to him, and I said, Paul... We're going to do the play, but not the play you thought you were going to do. He said, what do you mean? I said, we're not going to do this play of all these characters. I said, it has to be a one-man show. It has to be just you telling your story. I wanted to take what I had seen there and put that essence of Paul and his vulnerability and his openness and his honesty and his transparency on stage. Because I said, that's the only way this is going to work. We worked on it for about a year. We did a lot of research. We even talked to Spalding Gray. We did a lot of things of development. This is the first time I'd ever done this. After that was done, I said to myself, uh, and it was very successful, ran for a year in Los Angeles, sold out at the Tiffany Theater. It was sort of a weird situation. But I said, I'm done. I said, I, I'm, I can't do this again. It's exhausting working on one, with one person on one show but it was, it was a beautiful experience until I was at an acting class and I heard another monologue. This man got up and he told a story about when his mother, he did this monologue about from some play, I thought, about his mother picking him up after school, taking him 350 miles away from their hometown, putting him in a motel and leaving him there at the age of 10 for the summer. And he told the story, and I went, oh my God. I said, afterwards, I said, Shane, where, you know, where'd that story come from? I mean, what, what, what's that from? It's amazing, because I thought it was from a script. He says, that's from my life. And I remember that feeling at that moment going, oh my God, I've got another one. And now this kept happening. I kept getting, people would start coming to me. And we did that, that show, which was called No Place Like Home, which was all about child abuse. That's why she took him there. 
to save him from her, the father who was intent on killing the son. She saved his life. So that was a whole show about child abuse. And then came a Bronx tale, which I developed with Chaz Palminteri. And that became a, so suddenly all these shows became big hits and people said coming to me, but it wasn't the fact that people were coming to me, what my tendency, I have to tell you a little story. When I was a young boy, I was very good at fixing things, taking things apart and fixing things. I loved doing that. And my father had an old watch, a pocket watch, which didn't work. And I asked him if I could take it up. It wasn't valuable at all. And I asked him if I could take it apart. He said, sure. So I took the whole thing apart and put, because I was curious to figure out how it worked. And I got it all back together again. It still didn't work, but it was all back together again. The reason I tell you that is this is the way my mind works. I'm less interested in the final product of what I create than I am in how it's created. So I did a lot of research while I was developing all these one-person shows on what, how does this process really work? What are the techniques that work? Why did this work in this, with this show and not with this show? Why? All of these things. And from that long period of time, which started back in the early 90s, long period of time, up until to now, we're still doing this, exploring this whole aspect of autobiographical storytelling. Why is it so powerful? And what are all the tools and the techniques that you can use in the telling of any story that will change and alter and enhance or mold the story in the way you want to? So that has led to, but again, back in the 90s, someone asked me to teach a workshop on what I was doing. This is after I'd had several very successful shows. And I said I couldn't. I said, I can't. I said, it's just one-on-one. -on -one. I work with the actor, and then we work together, we develop the show, that's it. And then that person did something which is totally unforgivable, offered me a lot of money to teach the workshop. And I went, ah, no, now maybe I can do it. So I agreed to do it, and I started a workshop. And that's when I started to realize I can teach this. Uh, there is a lot of stuff I do know. And so this has become now, this workshop, which at that time was called the Solo Workshop because it was mostly for solo performers. Now it has morphed into being called the Write Your Life Workshop because it's not for solo, I mean, it's for everybody. It's for solo performers, for writers, memoirists, screenwriters, any, any storytellers. So we have storytellers from all over the world who want to take this workshop because it's so powerful, not because they want, interesting, not because they want to learn how to tell autobiographical stories. They want to learn the basics and the sort of the core and the foundation of storytelling. Because when, when like screenwriters take this course, they suddenly, their screenwriting improves. So it's a foundation. So when it says the Travis technique for autobiographical storytelling, this Write Your Life is the foundation of everything Elsha and I teach. Not just the writing, but the directing and acting and working with that. It all comes out of that. So when people come to study with us, the first thing they do is write autobiographical story and, and go through that process. It's like learning the scales before you start to try to play classical music or something else.
What if someone says, well, I'm not a writer and I'm not, I'm not planning on doing a one-woman show. Uh, why would I need to, to learn how to tell my own story? Where are opportunities that we have this in our daily lives we don't even realize it? In our daily lives. Now, I'm assuming this person that you're <laughs> throwing at me uh, is a writer or just, just, just an, an average? Maybe they're an insurance adjuster. Oh, insurance adjuster. And, and they say, eh, what do I, convince me, why should I take a class to learn how to tell my personal story? And um, I would go back, this is going back to some of our first questions, some of your first questions. I would say to that person, okay, um, you're an insurance adjuster, you're working with people and clients and all the time. Yeah. When's the last time you told one of them a personal story? When's the last? And why were you telling that story? And did you get the, res the um, result that you wanted? Did you communicate what you really wanted to? And were you even aware of what you were trying to communicate? And if you were aware of what you were trying to communicate, do you know there were probably several, a dozen different ways you could have told that story to get the result you wanted? In other words, I'm just saying that in your work, in your life, you frequently tell a personal story. You go to a family reunion and suddenly people are telling stories and you have a story to tell. Do you want to tell it consciously or unconsciously? Do you want to be aware, mindful of what you're doing and how you want to um, impact other people, how you want to be seen, what you want them to think? So we're all, the interesting thing about storytelling, people, people say, oh, I'm a storyteller, I'm a screenwriter, I'm a storyteller, I'm a storyteller. Who isn't? Who doesn't tell stories? My serious belief with the ch children, before they can speak, all that little, those little noises they're making, whatever, they're telling a story. In their mind, they're telling a story. They are communicating something. Eventually they get language and eventually they get words and then stories come out. So even if you, if you have little three-year-olds or four-year-olds who can be very verbal, two-year-olds can be very, just listen to them. Their stories just start tumbling out of them. It's a huge part of who we are. In fact, I think, you know, storytelling is right up there with breathing. We do it all the time, unconsciously. We need it, on, on not even knowing why. We don't get, go through the day re, reminding ourselves to breathe. We just do it. We don't go through and say, oh, I think I should tell a story. We just do it. And then there's another part of like write your life, which is very important, which is, do you know how to listen to a story? Do you know how to hear a story? And so when someone's telling you a story, can you listen, listen for the story and listen for what's really going on? Can you see beyond what they're really saying to see deeper into the story? So there's that, that aspect of it too. So that insurance salesperson could benefit enormously. What if someone says, well, how can I tell people about myself, but I don't want to tell them certain things? Then don't tell them those certain things. In fact, don't pick those stories. <laughs> pick, a, pick a different story. Um, yeah, there are, there are a lot of people who are afraid to tell stories because they're afraid of what they're going to reveal. But then this is a, a big a, a aspect, a part of the Write Your Life process, is we ask, 
And we don't ask for the answers to this question. We ask everybody, like I could ask you, Karen, right? Go ahead. Um, if you had no fear, okay. if there was no fear, what story would you tell? Right now? On mm -hmm. camera? You can say on camera. Mm -hmm. It's your camera. If there mm -hmm. was no fear. Right. I know a few. You know a few. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. Even even that. So you now in the workshop, even that, even people in the workshop thinking about the important thing of that question is not the story you come up with. The important thing about that question is the realization that my fear of that story is what's stopping me. The fear is the important part, not the story. True. And then this has happened many, many times in the workshops. One little thing about the Write Your Life workshop, uh, which I'm very proud. I was, back in 2001, I was asked to teach it in Hawaii. And I taught a weekend workshop there, and then eventually it became two weekends because it became so popular, two uh, con consecutive weekends. This is where I met Elsha because she, would, she was a student back in 2002. But, and that workshop went on for 16 years, up until 2015. Anyway, it went on for 16 years. And the thing is, there were times when we would bring it up, like, you know, if you had no fear, what story would you tell? And people go, oh yeah. Now a lot of people who took the workshop would take it every year, which was great. They would come back every year, because they not because... Again, getting back to your other question, not because they're going to do a one-person show, not because they're going to write the stories. They did it because they like the process of exploring themselves through these, their stories and hearing their friends ex ex explore themselves and expose themselves through their stories. And many times we would bring up that question, if you had no fear, what, would you, what story would you tell? And people go, oh, yeah, I know. And we ask them to write it down. They write it down. We don't ask them to share it. And many times, two or three years later, someone would tell a story and they would say, that was the story I wrote down years ago that I was afraid to tell. And we go, wow, something happens. Now, this is a very important part of autobiographical storytelling. In one show that I did, this is where it became really clear. This is the one on child abuse. And Shane uh, McCabe, who's a brilliant performer, told me this story, a little story within the big story. And the little story was about him living in his bedroom where he was forced to sleep in the closet. And because his, his house was built by his father and it wasn't built that well, there were a lot of openings and places, and he's in the closet and this little squirrel showed up in the closet. And over a long period of weeks and weeks and weeks, he started to develop a relationship with this squirrel, okay? And it's a beautiful story and how the squirrel would eventually eat out of his hands and how the squirrel, when he could get sneak out of the closet and sleep in the bed, the squirrel would sleep with him wherever he, they would sleep together. Now it has a very tragic ending, which I'm not gonna tell you, horrible ending. But as Shane is telling me this story, he said, Mark, I'm gonna tell you a story, but I, it's not going in the show. He says, I want to tell you the story about Chipper, because he kept mentioning Chipper, and I didn't know who Chipper was. So he tells me about Chipper the Squirrel, this horrendous story. Now, me, being a storyteller, 
and me being a director, I hear that story go, oh, this is good. This has to go in the show. And he's going, it's not going in the show. I'm not going to tell that story. And I could see why, because he was so devastated. He could barely hold himself together while he was telling it. And you don't want that on stage, and he doesn't want that. And we kept working on the show, developing and developing. Every once in a while, Chipper would come up. I would mention Chipper. He would mention Chipper. And then one day he said to me, maybe the Chipper's story should go in the show. I said, really? I said, and I would ask him to tell me again. And he would tell me the story again. And then we tried. We said, okay, let's put it in there. We'll rehearse it. We'll try it. And we did. And he kept telling it and telling it and telling it. The key thing was, I remember on opening night, we're at the Tiffany Theater in Los Angeles. He's opening in front of about 100 strangers. And he's on stage telling that story. And he's fine. He's totally, he has it all under control. And what became clear to me was these stories that are so traumatic and so awful that we are so afraid if we tell them, probably afraid that we're going to die, we'll never recover, we'll lose all self-esteem, or we'll, whatever, whatever's going to happen, it's just going to be horrendous. Or people are going to find out about it, and, and I can't live with that. Whatever the fears are, if you keep telling the story, and this is my way of looking at it, it's not that the fears go away, but the power shifts. There's a shift. The story is here and you're here. This story has power over you and it keeps, and it, keeps it suppressed. But if you keep telling the story, what happens is it shifts and eventually you have power over the story. Same story, same dramatic intent, same trauma, everything. But you have power over the story. And Elsha and I have seen this so many times when people have suddenly found somewhere the courage or the strength to tell something that they thought they could never tell. And so this process is also a healing process. Not intended to, not designed to do that, but it does it. How does knowing our own story make us a better storyteller? That's a big question. That's a great question because that's at the core of everything. Let's say, Karen, you have an autobiographical story, a story you want to tell. Um, and a couple, of things, a couple of things are very clear. One thing I mentioned earlier is it's already written. So the question is how to tell the story, not what the story is, but how do I tell it. Another thing that's very, very clear getting in terms of writing and getting in terms of how this process will influence your writing of anything is the protagonist. The protagonist in your story is you. And let's say it's a story when you were 15 years old and a date you had or something like that, whatever it is. I can see you trying to remember one. Yeah, which one? Well, <laughs> which I was one? sitting which home one? alone waiting by the phone. That's what it was. <laughs> okay, it's, okay, it's a story of you sitting home and that's fine. Now, you, but you're the protagonist of the story, of any story. Now the question is, when you think about, we talk to writers about the stories that they're creating and writing, how well do they know the protagonist? Now this is often a problem um, with a lot of the people who teach screenwriting or storytelling. You know, how well do you know the protagonist? How well do you even know your own characters? But now we're back to autobiographical. The protagonist is you. 
You should know you pretty well. In fact, you should know the other people around you, family and friends or whoever else is in that story pretty well. This is good. This is really good. But the question is, your protagonist, how well, let's say at 15, how well do you know the 15-year-old Karen? How well do you know what she was really thinking, really feeling, really wanting, really desiring, really expecting, really fearing at that time? You know what you did. You know about sitting at the phone. You know that the phone didn't ring or it did ring and it wasn't, wasn't for you. It was for somebody else or whatever it was. You know what the, the, you know what the events of the story are. But here's something that's really important. The events of your story, Karen, about sitting home waiting by the phone, those events and what happened is not the story. Those are the events of the story. That's the plot or that's the storyline, but it's not the story. The story is what happens inside 15-year-old Karen. What is going on inside this young woman sitting there by the phone? What is really going on? What is she hoping for? What is she fearing? Who is she fearing that might call? Who is she hoping that might call? That's what we need to know. That's the story. So the story exists inside the protagonist, not around the protagonist. Now all the events around the protagonist that happen actually trigger what's going on inside. Or what's going on inside is a reaction to what's going on on the outside. So we need both. But the events are not the story. The inner world of 15-year-old Karen, that is the story. So now in this process, and now right now on camera, I'm going to invite you to come take, you and David to come take a Write Your Life workshop as our guests. See, that's on tape. <laughs> so right now, the process is, Karen, you have to look at 15-year-old Karen as a character and go, who is she? What's really going on? And then once you can determine, I know what was going on, I remember this is what was going on, this is going on. Now, you have all of that that was going on during this event. Now the next question is, how do I relate that to the audience? How do I let the audience know that there's that one guy, Charlie, and I'm hoping he won't call because he did threaten to call. And I'm hoping because if he calls and I answer the phone, I'm in trouble because I don't know if I have the courage to say no to him. And I don't want, I'm just making this up. How are you going to let the audience know that? Because if the audience doesn't know that, if the audience, in fact, doesn't know what's going on inside you, they don't get the story. All they get is events and they go, fine, you're sitting at home and then you're worried and I'm, you can say, I was worried and all that, which gets us to the two narrators in a second here. But, but that's, so learning how to, for the writers to go through the process of exploring, excavating, pulling apart, looking at all the elements of a story that they know better than anybody else and exploring really what was going on for them and for all the people around them and then to try to understand the other parent, the parents, the brothers and sisters or whoever the other characters are, understanding them and how can I render them true to who they are, that's what makes a difference in all the other writing. Because we say what Elsha and I say to people who have taken the right your life, especially writers and directors, and we say, okay, now 
You see how deeply you have gone into your character and all the other characters? They go, yeah, yeah. You have to do that for every character and everything you direct and everything you write. That's what you have to do. And now the bar is really high. But now they understand. I have to understand my protagonist in my fictional movie as well as I understand me. But you can't do that until you've gone through a process of, of understanding you. Well, you just triggered a memory, and that was I wasn't 15, but the age 15 came up. And that was being home, and there was a knock at the apartment door. My mom wasn't home. I wasn't 15. I was younger. And it was, quote, the paper boy coming to collect. And I said, well, uh, and I was stammering. He goes, if you're 15, I'll take you out. <laughs> and I remember thinking, wow, like, like that's he doesn't even know who I am on the other side. You know, I could see him because, yeah. but but it was I can still see that because it was I don't think I was even twelve yet, and he didn't know wow. that. I, I sounded older than I was, but just the fact that somebody's coming to collect for the paper and he's already trying to like you know hustle up a date or something it's just kind mm -hmm. of funny. But so you reminded me of that because he Ta mentioned if you're fifteen because he said I'm fifteen. I'm fifteen. So. If you're fifteen, I'll take you out <laughs> even though I can't see you. Right. <laughs> and I'm here just to I'm a paper boy. I'm here to collect for your for your paper. But anyway, but so so going into that just mm -hmm. reminds me. So there you go. There's part of a story. No, that's a good story. It's a good story. And on the surface, like many most stories, we go, oh, that's cute. It's kind of creepy at the time. Yeah, yeah but, no, yeah. but it was creepy to you, Karen. Right, right. To, to the rest of the world, you say, you know, there I am, and he says, at 15, I'll take it. Oh, we go, oh, okay. <laughs> what we do, once we start to hear what's going on inside you, you know, that feeling like, ooh, it's this, you know, I'm feeling uncomfortable. Or, oh, that's what we want to hear. That's what, that's the richness, that's the core of, that's the gold of the story, is what's going on inside that little 12 year old right. at that moment. Who's home alone. Who's home alone. And the paper boy is is coming to collect. Yep. <laughs> it's a great story. Thank you. I can still see it. What do you think most people go wrong in telling their personal stories? Too much information, too little? Um, too much information or too little, possibly each. But um, getting back to what we were talking about is, yeah, there can be too much information, which um, about the events and all of that, which actually masks what's really going on in the character. Or there could be too little information about the character. Here's, but here's the um, a real key. Many times when we're doing these workshops or working with somebody who's doing this kind of writing, um, I will say quite honestly to them, it's a great story, but you're not in it. And they'll go, what do you mean? No, no, I was there and I told you. I said, no, no, you were there. You were the observer. The way you told the story, you were the observer. More like a journalist. You were the observer and you told us all the details and you gave us a little indication like, oh, yeah, in that moment, oh, and I was really scared or something like that. And I go, okay. But the thing is, you are not really in the story. You have kept yourself out of the story. Now, this story that the, this person has told quite possibly could be a very traumatic story. Frightening. One of those stories that generates a lot of fear. And now what can happen as a result of telling the story like that is as you're telling the story, even keeping yourself some very much out of the story, 
all those fears will come back because you're, it's, it's wired into your system. Those fears and everything are in your body and you are stimulating them again. And so you will feel the fear or feel the joy, feel the confusion, whatever, as you're telling the story. The problem is you will think that the audience is feeling the same thing. And I can tell you right now, they're not. They're not. There's no reason for them because they're not you. They will, each member of the audience will be feeling whatever they feel. They say, oh, that, that's funny. Oh, that's, that's kind of sad. They, it's, it's a wide range of what they could be feeling. I think autobiographical, the goal of autobiographical storytelling is can I tell you a story? Can I tell you a story like about my 10th birthday? And in such a way that I can take you through the story and you are moment by moment feeling and experiencing exactly what I felt as the 10-year-old at that moment while the story is being told without telling you, oh, in that moment I felt really scared. Then you could, Now that's just a piece of information that will not stimulate a feeling within you. My job as the storyteller is to stimulate emotion within you, not just give you information. So this, when you ask about too much information, too little information, it's usually too little of the real meat that we want, which is what is going on inside the character. I want to know what you're thinking or feeling. Most people won't do that. They just won't, by instinct, they won't do that. It's sort of a preservation instinct. So then we will listen to the story and we'll have our own reaction to it based on our life experience. That's it. Which we got to, which we talked about with why people like certain films and certain stories. Now you could tell a story to a group of a dozen people without having yourself really present in the story, and those dozen people will have about a dozen different reactions to the story based on their life experience, as if if this had happened to them, this is how they would respond. But the more powerful story is they know exactly how you were feeling, how you were responding. And now they're not responding to just the story. They're responding to your experience, your emotional experience through the story, and that's much more powerful. Was there a story that had power over you <clears throat> that then you were able to tell so many times and then you switched it and now you had power over that story that was your story? Well, you know, in the 30 years of doing this, is that what you mean? Whenever. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, I mean, I've been doing this for 30 years and one, um, it's a great question, Karen. And one thing I realized very early on when I started to um, work either with individual performers doing solo shows or work with a group like a workshop or even a larger group, what I was asking all of those writers or those artists or those human beings, those people to do was dig into their past, have a story and start to really explore it in a very open, raw, vulnerable way. And in order to really ask them to take those, that, that leap, the best way I could um, help them do that was to tell my own stories. So I would always, in every workshop, tell a story or, be or tell several stories to give them examples not only of how the story works or how the storytelling techniques which I was trying to teach them work but 
Um, it's that simple thing, and this has to do with directing. Don't ask an actor to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. So I couldn't ask these people to write something that I wasn't willing to do. So I need to do it and do it in front of them. And many times during that, I would um, purposely set myself a high challenge <clears throat> just in terms of the story that I would pick or the what I was going to talk about. I would push myself to say, can I go a little bit further? Can I, go a li can I get into a more dangerous area? And there was one time, and Elsha was there, that I told a story in Hawaii that had happened just two weeks earlier, which was devastating to me. It was a devastating story. And it was humiliating and brought a lot of shame to me and embarrassment. And I'd only told one person about it, my sister, who was also in the workshop at that time. And, but basically I was hiding it from the rest of the world. And then I decided in that workshop, I was gonna tell a part of that story. And I did, and it was a struggle, it was hard, but it was liberating. And um, so yes, that's, you know, I've had that experience many times going, wow, now I've done that, I can, I can do it again. So that my assessment that telling tough stories, traumatic stories, embarrassing or shameful stories again and again and again, the, the balance will change. I've also experienced that within my own storytelling. Have you seen there are some people have, they're just, unabashedly open about everything. I mean, there's just people that I'm just shocked they would put something on Twitter, but they, that's just who they are as, as human beings. There, there's no shame in anything. Mm -hmm. Everything's an open book. Maybe they came from a family that's like that, and mm -hmm. so that's how they communicated. Mm -hmm. Whereas there's other people that they're afraid to tell you what they had for breakfast, right? and they're super reserved, and you feel like every question you ask, even about the weather, is somehow a personal intrusion. Mm -hmm. Do you see those people interacting at your workshop together and just, just you know, the, the ones with the arms crossed where yeah. it's not even that they, they don't like somebody, but there's just, that's who they are. They're, they're just maybe not as trusting. And other people that they'll tell the cashier at the store some intimate detail from their love life. Yeah, I mean, the thing is in the workshops, we get a whole range of people. And it's interesting because they, they just using your two examples, the one who would just, the ones who just will blurt out anything personal and the other ones who are much more reserved and are afraid to even tell you their birthday or whatever, whatever it is. Um, we, we get that range, definitely that range. The first thing that's really interesting is at the beginning of the workshop, what we do is we check in with each person in front of everybody, not, not privately, why they're there, what they, what they really want and just sometimes hearing what they want is interesting. And very quickly we get a sense of the personality and maybe Elsha and I have talked to this person beforehand or met them online or something so we have a sense of who they are before they come into the workshop. But we, we, we check in with them to see what their goals are. And we get a sense that this one is very reserved and this, let's say this woman is so reserved and as you said, sort of like that and it's not gonna talk about anything. And we say, well, I wonder why she's here. And, but then we have a feeling this, is gonna, this workshop is gonna to be tough for her or a shock for her. And sometimes that person will, by the end of the three days, because it's just a three day workshop, will explode and something will come out. And sometimes my feeling is they're there unconsciously because they want to release. 
Now on the other end, the ones who will exp um, say everything, expose everything, we have to watch them carefully too, <laughs> because they can take over. We have people who come in and want to show us how it's done. And we know they're going to run into a shock, but when we start talking to them about some of the things I've talked to you about, they go, what, what do you mean I don't know myself? And um, there's another part of this which we can talk, you and I can talk about today, about how we use interrogation in this process. But because we interrogate that person, if I were to interrogate you as the 12-year-old, the one that answered the door for the one that answered the door. Okay. So this woman over here is telling a story about herself and right. whatever. And then we interrogate her at that time. Now suddenly she's aware that she has she's not as free as she thought she was. Then there's and and that person will go most likely go through a change during the three days. And there's another huge part of this workshop. Is that it's a workshop. There are maybe a dozen people there. And every single person is working on an autobiographical story. Every single person is struggling with their own obstacles, their own resistance, their own um, self-esteem, whatever it is they're struggling with. So you're in a room that is really rather unique. The energy in the room is extraordinary. So that shy one who won't say anything is being encouraged by the ones, others that she sees who are struggling, who make breakthroughs. The, the one who thinks she knows and everything is also going to benefit by experiencing what the other ones are going through. So that's a big part of the workshop is just to be in that environment for those three days and be immersed in that world of autobiographical storytelling and struggling with your own story, writing your story, rewriting your story, listening to other people, seeing them make breakthroughs, seeing them not make breakthroughs and not be able to get through an obstacle and seeing how frightening that is. All of that impacts everybody. So the, the truth is when Elsha and I do these workshops, we have no idea what's going to happen. We do the workshop pretty much the same way every time. But then after it's all over, Elsha and I sit down and discuss, could we improve? How could we change? What new things could we try? And we come up with some new things. But pretty much generally it's the same thing. It's the environment that the people are plunged into that causes the change. Interesting. So the extrovert that is, is, a, is sort of free spirit and tells everybody everything can learn from the reserved oh, introvert yes. with arms crossed and vice versa. Yes. Oh, yes, fascinating. and the extrovert may learn very graphically or just very subtly that her <coughs> explosion of stories that she puts out is actually covering up the story. She's not revealing anything it's except an mechanism. ego. Is it a defense mechanism though? Uh -huh. hide? Could be. I'm just saying could be. I don't know. It depends on the person. That yes, I'm going to tell you this and I'm going to tell you that and I'm going to... Do you remember the, the, the film American Beauty? Yes. Great. Remember Angela, the, the little cheerleader? Oh, yes. Who was just talking about her sexual exploits forever and ever and ever and <laughs> ever and ever until the end when she said, this is my first. Well, that was a cover-up. Those stories, the stories she was telling was a cover-up for her insecurities that she is, as she said, ordinary. She was afraid of just being ordinary, that nobody would want her. So she creates this whole myth about everybody wants her. Right, and Wes Bentley, who is a drug dealer, I guess, in the, in mm -hmm. the film, 
kind of almost downplays his intelligence mm -hmm. in a way, and you don't realize yeah. how deep and like feeling he is. But I don't know. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I love it. Yeah. So I mean, that's just an example. So yeah, the extrovert and the introvert will learn from other, and they and the the extent of what they learn may not um, resonate within them till weeks or months later. Because of this experience, they may start to see things differently. They may start to tell their stories differently. Who knows? It's very powerful. And it, it is a healing process. In the first workshops I did in Hawaii the first few years, there was a um, married couple. Um, I think it was Mary and John. I think that's, that's their name. Anyway, and they took it for several years. Married couple. They were very unique. Only in one way. <clears throat> they would each have their story they were going to tell. And as we learned quickly after the first year or so, that John would start telling the story. And the thing was, watch Mary, because Mary has probably never heard this story before. They would each tell stories in the workshop that they had never told each other before. And by the end of several years, the last time I saw them, they said that workshop made such a difference in their marriage, you know, because it gave them a safe place to be more open and more um, available and more transparent. How does someone decide where to start their story? Wow, that's how does where to start the story? Now I'm assuming we have this little three or four or five minute story, right? A, sure. little, a little, I'm staying with us. You mean where to start that story? Well, if they're going to tell people their life, what if they don't want to say, well, it all, you know, I was raised in such and such a town. What if they want to start it from the, the time that they left college? Okay. Because they feel like that's when their real self began. Or something. Okay, we need, we need to talk about two things then. Now I understand more. We need to un talk about uh, sequencing. Okay, sequencing of information, which I can talk about, which has to do with um, the events in a story. And do you really want to start with the beginning of the story? Or do you want to start with something in the middle? In other words, playing with the sequence, the chronology of events as you tell the story. So that's one thing. The, the other thing we can talk about when you say, tell the story of my life. There's another topic, and which I'm willing to forget what we're shooting now, but another topic which is about how an autobiographical story is put together because it's put together differently than a screenplay. It's put together differently than a novel. It's put together differently than fiction. And how we, the process I use to explore what the story is really about through the writing and don't make a determination at the beginning so those are two times. Does that make sense? So sequencing and then... Sequencing and then structuring the autobiographical story. Okay. Which are two different things. The structuring is which story comes first and the sequence of stories and then there's the sequencing within a story. So is that something you would determine if someone presents you... I'm, I'm sorry, I'm If not it presents me what? So, when you work with someone, how do they decide where to begin? Okay, let's talk about how to, where to begin with just one little story. If someone has told a story, 
And I'm, not, I'm just going to go back to your... The, you know, can we... I, my life is very that. dull. Yeah, I'm not really interested in talking about me. Sorry. Why don't we do a hypothetical uh, version of Karen, who's much more exciting. A hypothetical... <laughs> that's fiction. That's fiction. Let's okay, do something. Let me, okay. Karen, who's had an amazing, wild, incredible life. Okay. I'm going to tell you a quick story right now. One of my stories. And we'll use that, we'll use that as an example. Okay. okay. And I'll tell you, just, just give you an overview of the story. This is when I was uh, nine years old, about to become 10 years old. And so I was about to have my 10th birthday. I have an older brother and older sister, and I have younger siblings too. But my parents always made the 10th birthday a special birthday, special gift, extraordinary. So as I'm approaching, as I was approaching my 10th birthday, I was very excited about <clears throat> what's my gift going to be. I had seen what my older brother Peter got. It was great. At least he thought it was great, but it was great and it was very expensive. And I saw what my sister got. She thought it was great. They were very happy. And so I wanted something that was equally as great or actually better. I thought mine should be better. And so I was waiting for that moment. And then comes the morning of my birthday and I'm waking up, I can barely sleep, I'm waking up, I can't wait until the, we get to the, the time of the day when I'm going to open the presents and all of that. And my father is saying happy birthday and I'm thinking, well, what's a special gift? I think it might be, it could be a bike, I'm hoping it's going to be a bike. Or I'm, uh, I was hoping that it could be maybe something like skates ice skating because I was into ice skating and I also wanted maybe some new skis something like that bicycle skate skis that would have been great and I was just sitting there wondering what it's going to be and then the time came when we're opening the gifts and the whole family is around my older brother and sister and the younger ones are there and when they were there and when I opened the gift I don't even know if you'll know what this is when I tell you when I opened the gift what was inside was a wooden press to keep a tennis racket from warping. Now I played tennis. I knew what this was. I had a tennis racket. In fact, a new tennis racket might have been nice. But why did I need a new press? Because there were wooden tennis rackets back then. And I was just devastated and disappointed. And my father seemed very pleased, and my mother seemed very pleased. But my brother seemed smug. Peter, right? Peter, yeah. And Faith seemed not terribly interested. So I didn't get what I wanted. Why do you think they gave you that? Because they, I don't know. Is it what it represented to you that you weren't? What my, yeah, I think what that story is really about, Karen, is... Um, as the third child in a family of six children, I really felt less than most of the other children, except maybe my youngest sister. But anyway, <clears throat> the last, the sixth one. And at that time, at 10 years old, I think what I really wanted to feel wanted to feel is that I was as special, if not more special, than my older brother and sister. And this 10th birthday gift would do it. And only once would you get to do this. And I know what they got. And I know, and then I saw what I got. And it just didn't do it. 
So my expectation is that after I get the gift, my self-esteem would be super high. I would feel proud of myself, I would feel important, but I didn't. Okay, now, getting back to sequencing a story, right? The question is, with that story, where do you start? Now, the story, and you know this from filmmaking too, the story could start at the moment of opening the gift. Say, what would happen, this is what we'll do with students a lot of times, what would happen if you start with the opening of the gift? Well then, I said, yeah, but no, but you don't reveal what the gift is. You start at the moment of the opening of the gift, the moment when the adrenaline is so high and the anticipation is so huge and you start then and then you go back to the the beginning and start that way. What happens if you tell the story out of order? The important thing is that by the time the story is told completely, the audience has all the information that you're going to give them. That's it. But it doesn't mean they need it in chronological order. In fact, it could start after the opening, after, as I'm walking back to my room. And I could start with the story talking about me walking back to my room with my gifts, devastated, destroyed, feeling despondent, feeling like I want to cry. It could start there. And now, if you think about it, if you start there, the audience is going, what happened? What happened to you that it was so awful? and you're carrying birthday gifts and you want to cry, the audience has no frame of reference to make sense out of that. Which is great because it makes the audience curious. Then I can go back to the excitement about what I'm going to get. Now the audience knows the end and they're trying to figure, they're not trying to figure out where it's going to go, but they're trying to figure, how did it get from this to that? I could even throw in the middle of it how much I love tennis. Throw in the middle of the story. So that the tennis, the, the press for the tennis racket, the audience would think, well, that's great. But they realize it's not great because it's not greater than what Peter and Faith got. And where do I get that information in? So it's, it's, it's not, so that's, a, that's the sequencing. Where are you going to start? Where do you want to finish? That's the sequencing of a story. Now this is actually a lot of the um, storytelling techniques that we teach in Write Your Life with autobiographical stories come from film, film editing. Now you've seen films that start in the middle. You've seen events that start there. You've seen flashbacks, you go, what is that? And all of that process. Mark, can you share with us your use of two narrators? Yes. Um, the, the story I just told you about my uh, 10th birthday was told mostly in the past tense. Now what we will do when someone says, asks you something and you're about to tell an autobiographical story or you want to tell a story or you want to tell someone about what you just witnessed or you saw a week or two ago, you will by instinct there's a lot of reasons for this, tell it in the past tense. You will say, okay, it was last Wednesday and I was driving my car on the freeway and then I saw, and it's in the past tense. Now, as soon as you are telling the story in the past tense, the listener automatically knows several things. They know 
that you know the ending of the story. Now that sounds silly, or maybe a little confusing. Why wouldn't you? Of course you do know the ending. But when you tell it in the past tense, that narrator, talking in the past tense, knows the end of the story. That narrator also knows everything that's happened since that story until the present moment. And that's why we call it the omniscient narrator, the narrator who knows everything. I know the story I'm going to tell you, I know how it ends, I know everything that's happened since then, I know the repercussions of that story, I know everything. So it actually means that in the telling of the story, the story is like here, and the storyteller is here telling about this thing, and you, the listener, are there, and there's the story. So the story is separate from me, the storyteller, and separate from you. It's this entity that exists by itself here. <clears throat> then there's another narrator. And the other narrator is, is called the naive narrator. And this is a tricky one and very, very powerful. The naive narrator tells the story in the present tense. Tells the story, not only just in the present tense, but is telling the story from the point that the character is in at the moment. Not knowing even what's going to happen in the next few seconds. So rather than in the past tense, okay, it was last Wednesday, I was driving my car on the 405. That's the omniscient narrator. The naive narrator, I'm driving my car, I'm on the 405. Now, it's in the present tense. Now, right then, just the fact that you hear it in the present tense shifts the whole story. Because it sounds like I don't know what's going to happen. I'm driving on the 405 and I see this little yellow car and it's zooming, it's zooming up behind me. I can see it in my rear view mirror. Now, I can tell you all that. You still get the feeling that I don't know what's going to happen. Although, of course, if you're smart enough, you say, well, Mark is telling me this story. He's here in front of me. He must know how it's going to end. But my feeling is he doesn't. He doesn't because he's put himself in the middle of the story, telling the story as it happens. He is totally, totally naive. Now, Karen, the story is not here with me here. The story is around me and it's actually around you too. You are in the middle of the story. I'm in the middle of the story. And quite honestly, that's where you want to be. Now think about this. Every screenplay that you've ever read, and I'm assuming you've read a lot of them, they're all in the present tense. They're all in the present tense. Jim does this, he does that, he does this, he does that. Do you know why they're in the present tense? Because when it's up on the screen, we want to believe it's happening as we watch it. Now we, as an audience of film, are smart enough to know that we go to see a movie. We know they spent how many years writing it, how many months shooting it, how, you know, all the work they've done, it's done, it's finished, but we go and we watch it Suspending disbelief and believing that, that what we are watching right now on the screen is happening in the moment because that's where we want to be. So the naive narrator can take us into the center of the story. So as you're telling a story, it's not which narrator you use, it's when you use each narrator that 
gives you control over the story. In other words, I could be telling you the story, I'm making up this story about the 405, it's just as good as anything else. I'm driving on the 405, I'm on the 405 and I'm feeling nervous because behind me I see in this rear view mirror this yellow car is coming at me and he, he or she or whatever is going way too fast and I'm really scared. Now that's all the naive narrator. And you are probably in a point of going, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Now I, as the storyteller, and this is the beauty of being a storyteller, am in total control of this story. And I, at any time I want, can pop you out of the story. Right now you're in the middle of the story. I can pop you out at any time I want. And I can say, the car is coming at me, it's coming faster and faster. Now you've got to understand something about me and yellow cars. You know, the first car I ever bought was a yellow station wagon. It was really an ugly car. Now what I just did is I jumped to the other narrator. I jumped out of the story, I jumped to the other narrator, I'm giving you some information that I think you need to have which will help inform the story. But I've left you hanging about what's going on in the story. And there's a part of you go, okay, great information, but what's happening there? Okay, I got it, I got it. Now I have you curious about two things. Why am I getting this new information and what's happening there? And then any moment I can say, and, and I look in the rear view mirror and it's coming closer and closer and closer and I can see there's nobody driving it. There's nobody. So I can switch back and forth. Now as I switch back and forth between those two narrators, I'm actually manipulating you. I'm bringing you into the story, pulling you out of the story. Bring you into the story, pull you out of the story. That's all part of the structure of the story that I want to tell. That's how I want to tell it. But I'm playing with you, I'm playing with your relationship to the story. Do we like being manipulated? Does the audience, I mean, I realize that's a weird way to say it, but is that something we like? Do you like roller coasters, Karen? I don't. You don't. But I like movies. <laughs> but you like movies. <laughs> but I don't like roller coasters. No. Okay, but you did that, so that's why I thought. <laughs> uh, but I, th I think there's sort of a wonderful love-hate relationship with being manipulated. I don't want to be manipulated. And then we go through a movie, oh, oh, that's so scary. <laughs> Wasn't that great? And I'm thinking, well, you were just manipulated. I think we find our forms of entertainment that manipulate us, whether it's roller coaster rides or a movie, that take us into danger. Take us into a zone of danger where we feel that we're at risk. Roller coaster ride, we could die. We feel that way. Sometimes in a movie, it's an emotional danger. I'm going to feel sad. I'm going to feel hurt. I'm going to feel scared. But then you can, we come out going, wow, that was great. I want to see that again. But I say, you were scared. You were screaming out of fear. So there's this curious relationship we have. My feeling is when we go to see a movie or we read a book or, we, or hear a story being told is please, please manipulate me. Thrill me, scare me, dazzle me. My only caveat is don't bore me. Don't be boring. I don't mind movies that I hate because I felt hate. <laughs> I hate this and I hate these. I don't mind characters that I hate. People say, wasn't that one? I hated her. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. And all these characters and all these stories, they do manipulate us. But the worst thing is to go, there's no point to watching this. There's nothing going on. This is just boring. That's the worst. 
How do most people use the naive narrator incorrectly and then the omniscient narrator incorrectly? Several things about the two narrators you need to understand and how they can be, if they're used incorrectly, they just won't be effective at all. One thing about the omniscient narrator, the omniscient narrator does know everything. The omniscient narrator, since the omniscient narrator is talking about an event there, and is actually, that narrator is not involved in the event, that narrator is only telling about the event. The mistake you can do is say, okay, I'm gonna tell this story, and then I'm going to get really emotional so that the audience will know how emotionally I was affected at that time. But you're still telling it in the past tense. And when she looked at me, I wanted to cry. And then she did this, and then she did that. And you know what we have now? Therapy. Why am I telling the story? Am I telling the story because I want to go through those emotions again? Because we can feel, the audience can feel that emotion is not connected with the story. That, that emotion is connected with the memory of the story. So, the emotional journey of the character does not belong in that narrator. It belongs in the naive narrator. Now the naive narrator to say, you know, and she's looking at me and I'm really scared. Now I'm in the present tense. And I go, that's totally acceptable because you're telling me what's going on and how you're feeling, which is also what's going on in the moment. But, if the naive narrator tries to put this into some larger perspective, I'm looking at her and you've got to understand, you know, I, I, I've really had a lot of trouble with relationships for a long time. You go, where are you going? Why are you thinking about that in the middle of this, this moment with this woman? Why? That's the job of the omniscient narrator. The, each have separate jobs and they have to, you have to be purely in one or the other all the time. You also have an interrogation process for writers with the Travis right. technique right. and it's entitled Meet Your Characters? That's part of it. Because uh, you start out saying interrogation process for writers which we, there are a lot of techniques within that. and. The interrogation process, just to be clear about what it is, is actually interrogating um, a character who lives inside an actor or an individual. So this interrogation process, which can ignite characters inside the actors, we use this with writers, and we show writers how to do this, to actually meet their characters either while after they've written the screenplay, while they're writing the screenplay, often we've done it, they even have an idea for a screenplay. And they say, we get a call say, I'd like to do Meet Your Characters, can you help me meet the characters that I have? And so the writer will then describe to us, to Elsha and I, Here, here's the story, here are the characters. We say, fine, we'll gather together some actors who are very skilled actors who we've worked with before. And what we will do with these actors is we will give them, um, along with the writer's understanding of what we're doing, a certain amount of information about these characters. Sometimes it's very little information. Sometimes it's a lot of information. All depends on how developed the writer has 
gone, how far they've gone in the development of the characters. And we will interrogate these actors as these characters. So we will turn these actors into these characters. That's the interior. And then we will put, actually put these characters together. We'll have them interact. We will have the, show the writer how, not only how to do the interrogation, but allow the writer to actually engage with the characters. So let's say there's three or four characters that we've interrogated, and they're all the characters now. All these actors have become the characters, and now the writer can engage with the characters and ask them questions and interrogate them and start to learn to he will actually meet his characters. Sometimes the writer says, will say to us, I have this idea for a scene I want between the husband and wife. We'll say, great, great, we'll do that during the interrogation. We'll interrogate the husband and wife and we'll put them into that scene. Now there is no scene. There's nothing written. But it's a scene maybe when he comes home and he discovers that she bought the red dress that he told her she couldn't buy or something like that. And he discovers that she bought it and that's, they have little, very little information, but enough information for a scene, this is important, for a scene to get started. That's all. There's no more information beyond that. There's no information about what the father, the husband or the wife say or do, and there's no information about how the scene ends. It's just enough to get them into the scene. Because the important thing about interrogation is once we interrogate an actor as the character, that character <coughs> knows nothing about the script or the story. Nothing. Now the actor may know a lot, but the character knows nothing. The character is totally naive. So we can send those characters into a scene, just enough to get the scene started and see what happens. And now the writer is sitting there watching an interaction between two of his characters happen, something he hasn't even written yet. Can we try that now with something that I've we written? Can, we, we can, can try, try that. And, and keep in mind, I'm not a professional writer here, so this is gonna be a very, very light story. Um, so my character that I've come with, up with is, her name is Jill. She's 26 years old. She's unmarried, and she has a seventh-month-old baby with a man named Jack. Um, so because of some life issues, Jill and Jack have lost their right to stay at Jill's grandmother's home where mm -hmm. they were all living. And then after being kicked out of there, they move into Jack's brother's home, and Jack's brother is kind of several steps up. He has a stable job and a family life. But before you know it, Jill and Jack are then again asked to leave. Um, and they have, with their baby, baby Maya, and so now they've been asked to leave two places. Mm -hmm. um, so before Jill fell into this situation, she um, had planned on going to chef school, and she mm -hmm. was always artistic. This situation, you mean pregnancy? Uh, and meeting Jack. Okay. I, I think Jack came before the pregnancy. <laughs> That's good. It wasn't an immaculate conception. No, yeah. No, okay. no. But the, you said this situation before she got into this relationship. With this Jack. relationship, right? Yeah. And and then this baby, and then being bounced around from these different. She homes. wanted to go. To, she wanted to be a chef. Yeah, she wanted okay. to be a chef, and she was very artistic. And um, unfortunately, some of her demons got the better of her, and she met Jack while attending night school for this this chef sort of career. And they both fell into the world of partying and it got the better of them. So now here they are. They've been kicked out of their second place with a seventh-month-old baby. And uh, I want to get to know Jill better. Okay. 
and this uh, camera is your creation. Is this this character is your creation? Yeah, just okay. for the sake of this interview. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. It's not like I'm writing some. No, but it's your no. creation. It didn't come yeah. from something else. No, no, okay. just Jack and Jill, or you know, th those are those are used elsewhere. But yeah. So, so now you want to meet that character? Yeah, I want to meet character. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's fine. So I need to talk to Jill. Okay. Okay. Do you want me to be? Am I Jill or? This is where Jill, Jill lives inside you. Okay. So I need to talk to Jill. Okay. Okay, Jill? Okay. Yes, I how, work. How old are you? I'm 26. 26? And you wanted to be a chef? I do. You still want to be a chef? I do. I love the cooking channel. Um, I love making yeah. things. Yeah? Ma making food? Mm -hmm. Into yeah. pastries or cakes or um, casseroles yeah. or salad? What, what, kind of, what kind of chef do you want to be? An assortment. Maybe less with meat, more vegetarian. More vegetarian? Vegan, yeah. But you love cooking. Mm -hmm. So do you cook? But, you, but you're, you're married now? Or you, are you, oh, no. you're not married? No. But you have a child. Correct. Okay. But you still pursuing being a chef? Um, I don't know how I'm going to balance. I don't know. I mean, I want him to watch her, but he. You want him to watch. You want Jack to watch your child, but he won't. I mean, he's not. What is he, what is he doing? He's not reliable. What, what is he doing? Is he working? Not right now. He was. Oh, he's not working. He was. And are you working now? Not right now. And in order to pursue being a chef, what do you have to do? Well, I need to go back and finish these other credits. There's a couple classes I didn't finish. Oh, you got a couple classes you have to finish, and then you get a certificate or a degree or something? Right, what? and then I want to be accepted into this other, like, more professional Not... chef school. Okay, and then to move on to a more professional school. So you got a plan. This is, this is, I mean, this is a plan. I, Maya wasn't planned. I didn't say that. Doesn't I said, mean you know, I don't love in her. In terms of chefing, being a chef, you have a plan. Right. That, right. Got, that sort of got interrupted a little bit. A little but, bit. But, you know, that happens. That yeah. Happens. It happens to a lot of people. So when are you going to start you know, working on these credits? Well, I need... Like, my grandmother was paying for it, and then... Does Jack love you? In his own way. What does that mean? He has a weird... He has his own way of loving what? What is it? He has like trust issues. Trust, trusting. We, we both do. It's not just him. I have trust issues. Can you trust him? Not with money. No. Not with money. I mean, he. Do you want to marry him? If he if he stops drinking, I do. If he stops, oh, he's got a drinking problem. Yeah. He's got a drinking problem. He doesn't have a job. You can't trust him. Why are you with but him? But he's a good guy. He's a good guy for what? Does he watch after Mia? Does he want you to go back to chef school? I think he gets jealous. Does that I'm he meet want you to there. go back to chef school? He's jealous. I'm going to meet someone there. He, oh no, he's jealous. You're going to meet someone, so he wants to keep you at home. Because he saw my instructor and I were working, and he just said, "Like I don't like the way you stare at him, and he stares at you." Is that why he was so excited when you got pregnant? You I don't know how excited he was. Is that his way of keeping you at home, Jill? Why does he want to Maybe. keep you at home? He's not doing anything. When you're at home with me, what, what, where's Jack? He's watching TV. He's watching TV. He needs his time to watch sports and drink and, and just be like... Is that what he time? says or is that what you say? Well, I want to respect him and his wishes. Jill, do you respect him and his wishes to stay home and watch TV and drink beer with his friends? Is that what he does? 
No. I mean, I, I mean, yeah, that's what he does, but I don't. Why were you kicked out of the house? Um, we got what? in some fights. With but, who? Uh, well, he got mad at my grandmother, and my grandmother said that he took some money from, from her. I don't think he did. I think it was somebody else, but she blamed him. Do you him. think he could have? Maybe. Do you think he was capable of that? Yeah, but I, I don't, she doesn't like him. And so anything he does, yeah. like she just automatically wants to blame him. Yeah. And who, during that argument between your grandmother and Jack, right? Mm-hmm. What did you say? Well, who I don't. Who did you defend, Jill? Did I guess you defend I just, Jack? I asked him to keep his voice. He yells at her, and I don't like. No, that's that. not keeping his voice down. That's not the issue. The issue is she accused him of stealing some money, and she's going to kick him out of the house. Who are you defending? I was defending him. Why? He's just had it rough, and so he. Oh, so has what, trouble you have to take people. care of him. You have to protect him. Now you have two children, Jill. You have two children. One's only a few months old. The other one's in his 20s or something. Is this the way the rest of your life is going to go? Do you love your grandmother? I know he can do be a good person. Do you love your grandmother? Yes, I do. She's believed in me when no one She's else always did. good to you, wasn't yes. she? Yes. And she took you in when you needed help. Yes. When you got pregnant and you didn't know where to go. She protected you. And then you protected him against her. If you left Jack with Mia, could you go back to live with your grandmother? She says she won't give me any more money. I didn't ask you that. Could you live with her? Maybe. Would she watch Mia? She loves Mia. Yeah, she's been she's been willing to watch her, but she doesn't like his drinking, so she doesn't. No, no, no. I, I didn't say him. He's not going back. You're going back with Mia. Would she let you live with her? You and Mia. But then he'll just be gone. I know he'll be gone. Would, it's not an answer. Would she let you live with her? Would yeah. she watch Mia for you? Would she let you go back to school? Would she support you the way Jack doesn't? What do you want, Jill? I just want us all to be happy, the three of us. Well, that's great. Everybody wants that. What are you going to do? But I think that with the right time, he can be better. Right time for what? Just if he, what? he just needs someone to believe in him. No one believed in him. And so he needs people to believe in him. No one believes in him. So I believe in him. So it's your job to believe in him. And do you believe in him? If he could just stop. No, no. Do you believe in him? It's easy to say you believe in someone if they stop all the horrible things they're doing. Anybody can say that. Do you believe in him now, having not stopped anything? He's still drinking. He still doesn't trust you. He's horrible with money. He's not going to support you. He's not going to watch the child for you to go back to school. He's not doing any of that. Do you believe in him? He's in Do you a want negative to be, place. What's that? He's in a negative place right now. He certainly is. Do you believe in him? Do you want to be with him, Jill? I believe in do, him. Do you want to be with I him? I do want to be with him. Why? Because we, you know, things were better before, like, you know, 
his current behavior and he just had more, he was just fun and, and I think that he just needs some time to, to become a better person. You know, he didn't have a lot of role models growing up and I know that's, I can't like use that as an excuse, but I just think that if someone believes in him, he will turn it around. If someone, and that someone happens to be you, but you don't believe in him. Some days I it's do. It's clear that you don't believe in him. Some days I do. Oh, some days, oh that's great. How about 100% believe in him? 100% love him, 100% well, support him. He changes when he drinks. He so becomes, you can, I got it. He becomes I someone else. So it, he says he just wants to have a beer every now and then and watch Jill, sports. And so. if you could wave a ma magic wand, what would you ask for? That we would get married and that he would stop drinking and that we would both get jobs. And we wouldn't have to rely on my grandmother. That you would get married? Yeah. Does he want to get married? Do he says want... one day. What's that? He says one, one day. day. I mean, his parents weren't married. So what? So, and, and. That doesn't mean anything. So he doesn't believe in the institution of marriage. I see. So he really doesn't want to get married. But you want to get married. Yeah. Does he want to get a job? That was part of the magic wand thing is that he got a job. Does he want to get a job? Have you ever heard him talk about a job that he really wants and that he's willing to go for it? What does he want to do besides sit home and drink and watch TV? Like I said, he's just in a bad place right now. And then if it could just get him in a better place, then Jill, he you're want. living with a parasite. You know that. He's going to suck everything out of you. Everything. All your energy, all your joy, all your talent, all your hopes, all your dreams. But Until I don't want, you're sucked dry, and then he'll probably leave you. But I don't want Mia to grow up without a father. I want her to have him there. I, I mean, I, I know he's not perfect. I'm not perfect. Mm -hmm. I'm not perfect. So I can't expect him to be perfect. You can expect, expect him to be better than he is. You can expect him to respect you. You can expect him to love you. You can expect him to support you. You can expect him to sacrifice things that are important to him to help you if it's a marriage. Just being married won't make it any better, you know that. It'll be just the same as it is now. Well, he says he loves Mia. And I'm sure he does. I'm sure he does. Do you love Mia? Absolutely. Do you want her to grow up with a father like that? Just because he's the biological father, he's the only choice? I just don't want to do that to her. Do what to her? I don't want her to not know who raised her. I mean, like who, who her, her dad was. I don't want her she to have know that him. Thing. She can know him. Like question mark. She can know him. How are you going to protect Mia? I know one day she'll be strong and she'll see that he does love her. He's just going through some, he just, he's not perfect. He has issues, but I'm not perfect either. So I can't totally just expect him to be perfect, you know? He says that I nag him all the time and that um, I'm just always on his case. 
Okay. So, so you're so you're going to um, hang in there. Yeah, I thought about maybe moving back to my grandmother's Great. with Mia, and then, but okay. I don't know where he's going to go. So, I'll but do it. You can do that. Move back with your grandmother. You're a beautiful, strong, vibrant young woman who wants to be a chef. You have everything in front of you. You can make any choice you want to make. Just make it. There's nothing stopping you. But what's going to happen to him? He doesn't have anywhere to go. Who knows? That's his problem. I just don't want him to become more self-destructive than he already is. It may happen, but it won't be your fault. He's a great father, isn't he? Like I said, when he's in a good place. When he's in a good place, he's a great father. Seems like it. I mean... And you're happy when he's a great father, right? When he's in a good place. Yeah. So, stay with him. Just stay with him. Maybe it'll work out. Who knows? He just... He doesn't like it when I like not that I'm not telling him where I'm going and he wants to like know like where I am all the time and so it's just hard for me to like have a life and then he's there and I you know if just, you if you could tell Jack anything you wanted without fear of what would happen anything what would you tell him I just want to see him be better and believe in himself and just he doesn't need to always have like a beer. It seems like every hour with. That's what you want to tell him. I just, I want to see him like be the person I know he can be. What do you really think of him? I think that he just never had anyone believe in him. But I see a difference. Now, what do you think of him? What do you, Jill, think of Jack? I don't know. He's just become so negative. I'm going to ask you one last question. If you had to do, had it to do all over again, would you have gotten involved with Jack? No. No. I would have stayed at the school and, and just okay. kept going. Okay. Now we're going to stop. So, what was that like? Painful. Painful? Yeah, I feel bad for Jill. Okay. She's stuck, you know, and, um, you know, she doesn't have any resources and she's relying on this grandmother and, um, you know, maybe Jack's a good guy, but she's not, that's not her fault. It's not, she can't fix him, but... Um, She's like stuck in this pit, and you're right, she's taking mm -hmm. care of two children. And um, I guess I want her to have a backbone. You want her to have a backbone? Yeah. But the, since, since we did this because of Meet Your Characters, right? Mm -hmm. And this is not about you, Karen, playing Jill. This is about you meeting the Jill that's existing inside you. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, were there any surprises? How much maybe she made excuses for all these things or mm -hmm. like you brought them out to light 
and she just kept like making excuses for them. Like if only, if only, if only. Sure, in a perfect world, but in a perfect she, world, and if it just needs time, and all the all the excuses that she makes for him, which I don't think she would make if it wasn't for Mia. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, that's true. Because the child changed everything. Right. Not getting together with Jack, it was the child. Right. Changed everything. And it changed her perspective. That's true. And so protecting him. Protecting him because you're really protecting her. And the whole thing of you want her to have a father. I said, well, you know, she can have a father. There's more than one out there. That's true. <laughs> that could be the father. But that's, you know, because lots of times when we do this, um, this process with the writer, treating you as the writer of this story, is that the writer will discover things about their protagonist or any character in their story that they never imagined. Just because it's done through the interrogation process where the character is actually speaking. Now it's coming from within the writer, but it's because of the way the process works of the very intense probing questions. That's why it's called interrogation, probing questions about who you are. And there's something unique that I've been experiencing for years now for both writers and actors when they go through this process, because they're under the pressure of the character having to answer immediately. Not under the pressure of, oh, let me think about that. I'll journal about that. Let me think about, let me think about what Jill would do in that circumstance. That, that can't play at all. What plays is Jill's being asked and you're playing and you are being Jill and Jill has to answer. And so Jill, I'm sure that you've experienced that. Like I have to, I can't, yeah. I, Karen can't stay. Oh, excuse me, I don't know the answer to that. Can we go on to another? There's no, there's no room for that. Jill has to answer. And so many times you're surprised by what, the, what comes out of the character or the character's perspective or point of view or something. And we've done this many times where writers have said, my God, I didn't know he or she thought that. It's amazing. Now, it's not because of something I do. In other words, I'm not injecting information into the character at all. I'm just questioning the character. And the character has to answer, and you're, in, and you're free to say anything you want, any answer you want. So that lots of times they're surprised, but the character does exist inside you because you created that character and you know that character better than anybody. And all we're doing is moving you, the writer, out of the way. So you, I'm, I'm not allowing you, Karen, the writer, to control the character. You just have to sit on the side and watch the character emerge and be questioned and be interrogated and be herself. And you go, wow, that's a different person than I thought. I was scared while scared. you were interrogating me because I, I, I saw that my life was like backed into this corner and mm -hmm. that there were no solutions mm -hmm. to it and um, you know it's, it's loose. I, I had thought of a story like this years ago. Um, I never really did much with it but it was kind of based on people that I would see um, that were like young families that kind of like lived in trailers and different things and I always wondered like how did they get there I'm sure mm -hmm. it's not something they planned and um, you know how do we know that that couldn't have been any of us right there with the with the 
certain set of circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you'll just see someone on the street and you just like start wondering about their life. Mm -hmm. And um, just, just, yeah, I felt like, I think I felt more like Jill than I ever had. I actually had a different name for the character before, but um, mm -hmm. we changed it because it was so, it was a different name. It was like very unusual. But I did, I felt very scared and like I had no choices and no, uh, no say, no agency in my own life. Mm -hmm. And so you were showing me as Jill that like, you know, there's not many places to go with this, <laughs> you know? So yeah, yeah I, I and, did, it felt and, very and, and a lot of what we did with Jill too is, <clears throat> and this happens a lot in interrogation, is push the character up against their obstacles and it's um, the obstacles that are inside them, the fears. I mean, Jill's fear of not having Jack around, which is really irrational, but understandable. Understandable, because that's what happens. But like how, because yeah, even when I said move back with the grandmother and all that, you and Mia, but you say, well, yeah, but what's gonna happen to Jack? I go, excuse me? I'm giving you an opportunity to get out of a bad situation and all you wanna do is get back in it. But just to run into that, so we, you know, it's it's a matter of pushing the character up against even their fears or their denial or their rationalization or justification and question it. Not saying it's wrong, but just can you explain to me why you think that way? That's all I was doing. Explain that to me, and I could see you you're going. I, 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 can't, I can't. Well, then we have a problem. <laughs> That's it. Great. And that's, what, that, and that's what we do with and now. There's one other thing, that process is similar to what we do with writers with the Write Your Life to, except we're interrogating them as themselves at a different time. But it's the same process. And the same, many times the same thing will happen. Even they go, oh, wow, I didn't know that that's what I was thinking back then. And, and what happens when it's with Write Your Life or autobiographical is and I'm very much aware of this, and I have to be a little more delicate sometimes because I'm actually interrogating you as you. So I have to be much more careful. I can't be as um, aggressive sometimes. Because, but many times what I'm triggering is the truth that has been buried. And the people are surprised that this came out. And they, they can feel that it's true. They can feel that this is what was really going on. They can feel that this was really the fears that they were dealing with. And now they go back to look at the story and they see it in a whole different way because they see their protagonist in a different way. Yeah, and I see this character in a different way now. Good. We just finished the meet your character interrogation process, Mark, where it's a hypothetical character I came up with. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering when you do this with other writers, what's the most common reaction afterwards that they have? after meeting that character. Okay, um, if it's meeting the characters like we did with you where the character comes from within you, as opposed to meeting the characters when they come out of actors, right? I'm going back to what we did with you. Um, the, re the reaction is usually surprised by what they learned that they didn't know. They're surprised by what the character says or what the character does or what the character believes in or doesn't believe in. And a lot of that, of course, I have no idea what's gonna come up because I don't know the characters that well. 
as well as the writer does and I don't know how they perceive the character and many times the writer will perceive the character in a very precious way. This is who she is and this is what I want her to be. Which is a very controlling way. So then what will happen during the interrogation is something will come out that is outside of that or, or different from that perception that they have or that creation that they have in their mind. <clears throat> that the character will start talking in a way or behaving in a way or responding in a way that they that they never would have allowed the character to do as the writer. But there's the character doing it. There's the character saying that. There's the character expressing those feelings, those ideas. And they're surprised. So normally then it would be a group of actors or an actor as this character Jill or Jack, these two characters, mm -hmm. or maybe even the grandmother, who knows. Yep. It, and the writer would be watching you interrogate those people as those characters. Well, yes. I mean, when, when we get into the Write Your Life with a writer and we have a group of actors who are going to become their characters, um, it's, it's a, a little more complicated process because depending on who the writer is, simultaneously I have to, besides interrogating all the actors to become those characters, I have, I'm simultaneously training the writer how to do this, how to, to the, the very sort of the very beginning steps of interrogation process and how it can work. And then even then once I've interrogated the actors to be those characters, I will bring the writer in to start talking to the characters. It won't be just me and to even get involved in the interrogation. Oh. So that's the part of the meeting. I can um, be interrogating, I could be interrogating an, an actress as Jill, the character we just did. <clears throat> I could have the writer right next to me. I could have you right next to me if we we're doing this and you're the writer and I could just tap you like, go, talk to her. And keep, keep up the interrogation. Just keep it going and explore. And you may have other questions you want to ask and, and other, other things, uh, points of view you want to express to her to see what's happening. So there's a, it's a process of not only just working with the actors, but bringing the writer into the process and then eventually engaging them with all the characters. And something that Elsha mentioned um, that just for the sake of the camera, I guess we couldn't do is that I'm sitting in Karen's seat, you know, referring to myself seat. in the third person. Yeah. Yep. So the lines between Jill and Karen are going to be sort of, they'd be, if I was standing up and outside of the seat, then it would be more that I'm Jill, I guess. That yeah, but you, feel, you feel more of a separation. Right, exactly. Interesting. Great. Do you find that writers become quite emotional because they've met their characters? Um, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes they, um, sometimes they're emotional because they are responding to the characters. I guess in a way that they hope that the audience will, that they're actually meeting them and realizing how vulnerable they are or how scared they are or how magnificent they are and going, wow, this is really, I'm moved by the characters. And sometimes they'll become very emotional when something will happen between two of the characters um, that they hadn't imagined but actually is, um, working into the story that they want to tell. Let's say it's just between two characters who have never met before. 
and suddenly there's a connection and one character says he feels that way about the other character because they'll talk about how they feel well, in the interrogation, how they feel about each other and how they see each other. And sometimes the writer will hear, oh my God, I never imagined that that could happen. That there could be that connection between the two and they'll become emotional because of that because it's a richness of the characters and the character relationship that they hadn't really conceived of yet. And then do you find, conversely, that they don't like their character and they don't have any empathy toward them? And they go, you know what? I need to go back to the drawing board. This isn't the character that I thought yeah. they were. Yeah, and yeah, sometimes they're going, oh, okay, that character didn't turn out the way I had hoped. Then it would be going back to, okay, what were you looking for? Because we're basing it on what you told me or you told us. And maybe you need to alter something along those lines and we could do it again. And quite honestly, we could do it again almost immediately. If they say, I wanna, I wanna approach this character in a different way. I say, okay, let's do it. Talk about it and the actor can be sitting there listening to it and say, okay, we're gonna approach the character or I'll go to another actor. So I'm gonna do another actor for that character and start interrogating them and, and interrogate them into the character again and we'll have a different version of the character. Great. Yeah, I would love to, that, that, I mean, that just sounds so exciting, even though I'm not really invested in this character that I yeah. had this hypothetical story, but um, just it sounds like really, really fascinating to see this thing that was in your imagination, just like in front mm -hmm. of you. Very powerful. Good. You talk about something called the bully and the butterfly, your committee as it relates to meeting characters. Yes, another big topic. And I think, Karen, I think we talked about this in the last interview, many, many years ago. Okay, my memory's uh, a short. No, 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 so, no, oh, okay. that's, a, no that's okay. <laughs> this, this has to do with the committee. Now the committee, I'll explain. Um, in fact, in the interrogation that we just did, there was the committee, but I, I'll explain how that works. The, um, the term committee, the way we use it, stand, represents all the voices in your head. So all the voices in your head, Karen, or David's head, <laughs> David's head, Alice's, there's many voices in there. And as you know, these voices in our heads that we all have, we talk to them, they talk to us, they criticize us, they praise us, they advise us or whatever, they get in the way sometimes. And there, there are a lot of them, that's why I call it the committee because I feel like there's a lot in my head, I feel like there's a lot of these voices and they are sometimes in session discussing something. So the voices in the head of us as humans are very important because I feel like my committee, your committee, David's or Elsha's committee, or I'll go back to your committee, Karen, your committee knows everything about you, everything. Even stuff that nobody else knows. It's in there somewhere. Yeah. So when you think about the fact that we have all these voices in our head and these voices know everything about us and each voice in our head has different opinions about that subject or that topic or any subject or any topic, this is a very rich territory inside any human being. But then think about a character, a character in a movie, a character like Jill. Jill has a committee. And if you could get into her committee, if you could visit her committee, you would know more about Jill. 
But the problem is in screenplays and most stories that are plays, however they were written, <coughs> we are given no information at all about the committee inside a character. Nothing. We know what the character does, we know what the character says, we know what the character how she expresses herself, what she wants, what her needs are. We get a little idea of what she's afraid of and all that, but we really don't know what's going on inside her head. Okay? Because inside her head, inside Jill's head, are all of these voices. Right? Now, what is it? The but butterfly and the... And the bully. The bully. The bully and the butterfly. Yeah, colon, you're committing. Yeah, the bully. Now, what I just did with you, with Jill, and that was mostly the bully. The bully that there's a voice inside Jill's head which is saying, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. What you ex kept trying to hold on to was another voice. This will work. This will work. If I give him time, you're trying, that's the butterfly. If you're trying to hold on, sometimes, there were a couple of times when I was talking to you, I would support the butterfly, but then I would go back to the bully. So the thing is, there's a war going on inside the committee. There's a war going on inside every one of our committees. It's, it's, just, it's, it's chaos in there. So the interrogation is giving voice to all of those voices. So every time I, I, I can attack you about something, I can praise you about something, those are two different voices of the committee inside Jill's head. And Jill, by Jill, you as voicing Jill, responding to those voices of her committee, every time you respond, Jill gets formed a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. So Jill is getting formed by forming the committee not by telling the actress or the writer who Jill is, but by forming Jill through the interrogation process. And then are they also forming who Jack is? Same thing Because with they're confronting her on these different things. Well, by confronting her, well, we're, we're forming, yes, we're forming Jill's point of view of, of Jack. Now, if I interrogate Jack, or if I interrogate you as Jack, or interrogate somebody else as Jack. It won't be the same as Jill. Jack has his point of view. Jack has his, Jack has his committee. His committee that says, you know, she should take care of me. This is what the, you know, she's the wife. I'm just making it up. I don't know. Sure. But he will have his committee that justifies his behavior or questions his behavior. He's got the a different committee, but it's also in chaos. So these committees are in chaos. And it's building a character from deep, deep inside the character, where quite respectfully to writers and actors, writers and actors will create the character from outside. Writers will design a character. You design this character. Actors will look at a script and go, okay, oh no, I, I can design a character that will do those things that are in the script. But that's not really developing the character at all. That's really creating sort of like a puppet that will do the things that are demanded in the script. The thing is, what's going on inside that character that causes him or her to do those things in the script? That's what you have to build. And that has to be built from way deep inside, not on the outside. 
So when someone's writing a script and we're not connecting to the character, is that because it's almost a puppet? Could be. Okay. Could be a two-dimensional character, yep. Okay. Puppet who's just doing... I mean, we've all seen films or, or plays or whatever, where our television, where we go, well, the only reason that character's doing that is because the writer needs them to do that. Right. So it's not the character, it's the writer pulling strings to get the character to do that so that the story will work out. That happens too often. And why do you think this, this meeting their characters and the interrogation, why do you think it just puts you in a different mindset? Because I'm already in a different mindset about a character that I just kind of like came up with and I've been thinking about for years but never really mm -hmm. did anything with. So I'm not totally invested, but now like I feel like that person's real mm -hmm. from just sitting here with you for that 10 to 15 minute span. Mm -hmm. Why do you think it works? What is it that happens? I think part of the reason, it's a great question, I think part of the reason it works um, for both writers and actors, but we'll talk about writers for a second, is because that's sort of the situation you're in with Jill, is suddenly there's a respect for another human being. You feel like there's another human being existing who's Jill and I've met her. Or there's these other human beings of these characters that I thought I created. Now I've met them in person. And I now, I have an obligation to them as the writer to honor them. Not I have a task of creating them. I have a task of honoring them and who they are and what that relationship is. So I think there's a, there's a, um, a different respect. And I think the same thing happens for actors when they've been interrogated. They feel they've had this experience of this character that lives inside them and still it's like, I need to honor this, this person. There is, there is another person. It's not just me acting. So acting sort of goes away. Yeah, I don't know if you saw Joker, but yeah. if you saw the way Joaquin Phoenix approached the character yeah. of Arthur Fleck, I mean, whether you want to say it was a, a terrible human being, but mm -hmm. you, there were just so many moments where you had, at least for me as a viewer, I had so much empathy yeah. for that character. Yeah. And I think that's through Joaquin's, you know, treating him as just he was a real... Yeah, it's his total immersion. Yeah. It's his to I mean, it, it's an extraordinary performance. Absolutely. And his total immersion into that tortured human being. And it's interesting because he ends up becoming, he ends up doing horrible things, evil things, killing people. And yet I have empathy for him because he's so tortured. He's so, you know, it's, I mean, that's an extraordinary achievement. Absolutely. And the same with Renee Zellweger as uh, Judy, yeah. Judy Garland. Yep. Same exactly. thing, you know, especially exactly. from just the opening scene, just showing up at the hotel with the kids and then yep. not knowing if she could stay or not and just... Yep. Yeah, this like fragility, but then this like, you know, onstage persona. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was just seeing characters like that. Like yeah. you just all time goes away. Yeah, you know, and in that moment when you were asking about my character, time went away, mm -hmm. and I felt like I was her. So, yeah. Good. We talked about compression and expansion of time when it comes to a writer meeting their character. <sighs> okay, um, that that's. That's really not with the writers meeting the characters. Oh, okay. But that's okay. But compression and expansion, it has a lot to do with 
The Right Your Life, autobiographical storytelling. The thing is that we have a tendency by instinct or whatever to not only tell things in a chronological order, but to tell them pretty much in real time. And we will tell this happened, then this happened, then this happened. In other words, time will feel as we're telling the story that time is moving at its normal pace. Compression and expansion are two techniques of playing with time in storytelling. One is compressing time and the other is expanding it. Compressing time is I could move you through, I could be telling you a story and I could move you through um, a part of the story much faster, much faster than um, real time, very, 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 very fast. And what a couple of things that happens, and I'll try to give you an example. I'm going back to my driving on the 405, which is a story I just made up. Um, see if I can do it with that. And let's say that that's a story of me having a tough day and I'm racing, to, I'm on the 405 racing to get to an appointment or something like that. That's when I see the yellow car. But I want to tell you what the rest, let's say I want to tell you what the rest, rest of the day has been like up till that point. But it's been a long day and there's been a lot of things that have happened, so many that if I start listing them all, you go, fine, 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 fine. And emotionally, it won't do much of it. You just get a, you'll just get a lot of information. Like if I told you that my alarm clock didn't go off when I wanted to, so I got up late, and then I had problems with the shower because I promised myself I'd fix it, and it, was, it wasn't fixed, and I had to hold it with one hand. And then as, as, as I was getting dressed, I spilled something on my favorite shirt, and then I went on and on and on, and then I did this, and then as, as I was going to, to get to the appointment, I'm going outside, and my neighbor, who was really annoying, wanted to talk, and she won't start talking, and then so I talked to her for a while and then I'm going on and then I'm trying to get to the car. Now the car is fine except I should have washed it and I should have realized that I'm going to meet this person. He's going to see my car and the car is dirty. Now I could tell, you know, I say all these things are going on but I say I don't want to even take as much time as I just took to tell that. And also after a while it goes, yeah, got it. Yes, got it. Got it. It's been a bad day. Got it. Got it. Got it. If I compress it, I can tell it very much faster much faster, and still take you on an emotional journey. I would say, I'm up, 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 in, up in the morning, alarm clock, didn't work, didn't work, didn't work, supposed to be 6.30, gotta get there on time, take a shower, shower's broken, always been broken, my fault, should have fixed it, gotta get there on time. Where's that shirt? There's the shirt, beautiful shirt, put on the shirt, spill the, spill the oatmeal on it, oatmeal, damn oatmeal, change the shirt, don't like the shirt, gotta go, gotta go, outside, there's Rhonda, she wants to talk, can't talk, gotta go, gotta go, get in the car, get in, bye Rhonda, she's still talking, bye Rhonda, get in the car, should have washed the car, why didn't I wash the car? This is an important thing, I should have washed the car, he's going to see the car, got to get going. Now, that I just covered the same amount of time, same amount of events, but faster. And it becomes more poetic and becomes more fractured time. That's compressing time. Now we do, the, this is built on what we can do in film with jump cutting and fast cutting. And we've all seen that where it goes, chick, chick, chick. we start moving, moving through time faster and it puts us in a different rhythm and it puts us in a different energy and it creates an urgency just by the construction of it, of those fast cuts, just by the construction of jumping, 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 jumping through all, all of that. And actually in the piece that I just did, I wove through one phrase 
that I kept repeating, which you may not recall, but doesn't matter. The, rep- the phrase was, gotta get there on time, gotta get there on time. And I can weave that through and you may or may not notice it, you may not be aware. That's sort of like a little mantra that keeps repeating, which is really what the whole compression is about. So that's compression. So many times when we're doing these large stories and someone says, well, you have to understand everything that was happening up until then. I say, I got it, but we'll have to compress it. It takes a lot of work to do that. It takes a lot of work to explore that amount of time, what really happened, and then to write it and then compress it. The other one, which is much more powerful, is the expansion of time. The expansion of time we use when you hit a point in the story. You're telling a story. And it's usually the point the key moment in the story. It's the key moment if it's a love story, it's a key moment of the first kiss. Or maybe if it's a frightening traumatic story, it's when you witnessed something that just um, changed your life. Something maybe horrible or maybe it was a car accident or something. Something happened in the story which just riveted you. And it's one of those moments, Cameron, when you know something happens and your whole body seems to change. What ripples through you, the embarrassment, the fear, the shame, the horror, the disgust, the joy, whatever is going, it's just rippling through you, then you say, okay, how do I tell that? And you don't want to go along and say, then I, you know, I looked at her, looked in her eyes, and then, then, then I'm, I'm kissing her, and it really felt great, and because that's all, and I'm moving on. You go, that's it? The expansion of time is what we do is we stop time. We literally stop the story. So if it is the kiss, and if, and if it's, you're talking about that moment of that first kiss, and you say, I'm looking at her eyes, and her eyes are looking up at me, and I can see the sparkle in her eyes and I, I can feel that, yes, this is the moment I reach in and I start to kiss her and I, my lips touch, touch her lips and lips, touching lips, warm, soft, smooth, joy, oh, tears, my tears, her tears, oh, touching, touching, wanting, needing, needing, feeling, breathe. And then I can pull myself out of it. Now that's an expansion. An expansion of time stops the story. And what it does is it, we keep telling the story, but we drop down inside the character to really explore what's going on in that moment of time. And time is not moving forward at all. Or if it is, it's just inching forward maybe a little bit. In almost like slow motion. Now in cinema, we use slow motion and things like to get that same feeling. Here we do it because we're not dealing with anything visual. We're doing it just with words, just with words. And the main thing that expansion needs, it needs a trigger, something to send you into that. In this moment, the trigger was the lips touching. It's something that visually or essentially that send you in, and it needs a release, something to bring you out something to snap you out of it so that you can go back into real time. So that's, that's expansion. The, the release I didn't put in yet because I wanted to explain it first because you have to plan the release. 
And if, so if I'm in the middle of that kiss and I'm talking about soft, touching, kissing, now my planned release, I'm not going to bring myself out of that feeling because it's such a delicious feeling. Even if it's a horrible, traumatic feeling, you may want to bring yourself out, but you can't. Something else has to bring you out of it. Somebody saying my name would bring me out of it. So if it's touching the, the lips, touch warm, smooth, touching lips more, want more, more, Mark, yeah? <laughs> Something like that, bam! So then it brings me out of it. So that's what expansion, expansion allows you to just immerse yourself in the, the joy or the horror or the trauma or the exhilarance, whatever it is, of the moment, of that key moment. And usually this is what the whole story is aiming for at this moment anyway, and you, and you want to take time with it. That's expansion. Do you think that people should follow their dreams, and along those lines, if they should follow their dreams, when should an artist leave their day job? Boy, that, that's a tricky one. It's a really tricky question because there's a part of me. I'll give you, this is my committee giving several answers. Okay. <laughs> there's a part of me that says, don't leave your, don't leave your day job until it becomes absolutely impossible to stay in it because of the dream you're following. See how long you can stay in the day job. Um, and I'm just thinking about security and all that. Then there's another part uh, that says, oh, leave it. Just go at any time. Now, I'm, in, some, in some ways, I'm not a great person to ask this because um, when I started in this business, I've had very few, quote, day jobs. I've, been, I've just been able to create a lot of jobs or create a lot of work or do a lot of things that I wanted to do. And then there were times years and years and years ago, 30, 40 years ago, I had day jobs uh, while I was still pursuing this. But as soon as I got a job directing or a job something in the business, day job was gone immediately. So I was one of those that would just quit immediately. But then sometimes months later, I would find myself in deep trouble because that job was over. The job I did, it was fine, that done, but there was no job following it. And then I was found myself scrambling again to put something together, at least to support myself. So I don't, you know, but the following of the dreams, I think the, the big question is, do you have a plan? Do you have a vision of how you're going to uh, pursue uh, what you want? And this is also from personal experience. I've um, at times um, unfortunately relied too heavily on jobs showing up or someone helping me out and not taking care of it myself. Then I've swung the other way and created a whole business on my own to support myself, which is and still in my business, which I'm doing now, to support myself. So I've gone both, both ways. I think it's looking at what is, what is my plan? What is my plan for today? Or let's put it this way. This has something to do with what Elsha and I are looking into now, is what your dream where do you imagine you would be five years from now following your dream? Can you imagine where you would be and what, and just write about what that is and describe what that is. Okay, now come back. 
where, where would you be five months from now in that dream? Describe that. Okay. Then you come back. Where would you be five days from now following your dream? And can you describe that? Now you you described goals and pinpoints. And then the last thing is, what can you do in the next hour to fulfill that dream? Doing that, you'll start to see possibly a plan, a goal, a, a map of some sort. I think too many people are following dreams. I want to be a great actress. I want to be a great writer. But there's no map. There's no, I'm going to, I'm going to write a screenplay, um, three screenplays this year, three different genres. That's a plan. Can you do that while you have your day job? Sure you can. So I think it's a matter of really being realistic about not just what the dream is, but what how you envision you might get there. Chances are it won't work exactly that way, but chances are if you have that vision, you're going to come somewhat closer, or at least be moving in that direction. Are you almost relieved that you didn't um, take a day job? You know, you said you would work at one directing thing or something. Than as many industry jobs, other one. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you had had something more cush or that it was just more stable, then you wouldn't have created what you've created. More cush or stable, like what? Well, if if you just had like this steady job after job, you said sometimes you you waited and you relied too much on a job being there for you, mm-hmm. and and maybe it wasn't at times. Yeah. Maybe that was a painful lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that in some ways that was a good painful lesson because then it ignited in you to start, you know, what you started and, and write and do these classes and and the Travis Institute and all these yeah. different things? Yeah, it's, I mean, it did the, everything I'm doing now and that Elsha and I are doing now together, which started many, many years ago, um, was generated, was started out of that desperation. Out of that desperation, I have to do something. And because of who I am or whatever, my personality, what I did not pursue was a typical day job, whether it's waiting on tables or working for a company or something like that. My fallback has always been create something. So I would create a job. And that was creating workshops that I was teaching, first for actors and then for directors. And I would keep creating something that didn't exist that I could do, which would keep me close to what I was doing anyway. I didn't want to go and work in, you know, nine to five in some, you know, office building. I just, that would be just too devastating to me and too demoralizing for me. So that's what I would do. But I would wait a long time before doing that until it was desperate and then I would have to put something together rather quickly to keep everything going. Then ironically, with the teaching that I was doing, it became more than just a day job. It became an entire business. It became an entire business that you know resulted in what I'm doing now, which is traveling around the world and teaching. And many times I go, well, what, what happened to my other job? The directing thing, all the other stuff I was doing, because this has become... Um, so, you know, massive of what I'm doing, and now with Elsha, what Elsha and I are doing together, that um, it has taken over. And sometimes I, I think, what would happen? 
what would happen now if I was offered a, a directing thing? I, well, we'd have to make some big shifts and changes. So, but that, and that's okay. But that, that's the way my life has always been. It's always been um, a bit chaotic and under my control, which means sometimes out of control. But at the end of the day, you're still working with story. Still doing the and same thing. And that's something you love. Yeah, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. I, if, well, if you're going to create something, you might as well create something you enjoy doing. So I wouldn't create something I enjoy doing or, or that I knew I was good at and that I could survive at if I could just construct something um, along the line. So the teaching and the coaching and the consulting and all of that falls right in that, although it's not directing, but you know, it's all around it. It's, it's, and all my directing skills and my writing skills, you know, um, supply that, support that, that process. So I'm not that far away from what I was doing in fact, I've moved way beyond what I was doing. So again, going back to when should an artist quit, uh, when should an artist quit their day job? It's when it becomes unbearable at that day job. Unbearable. Or their other thing becomes undeniable in terms of supporting them. Unbearable, yeah. undeniable. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's sort of in that zone. The reason I'm hesitating is because I just remembered something um, that happened to me. There were, again, doing a lot of the teaching stuff, there was a time, this is back in the early 90s, and I was teaching a lot of workshops and um, doing, you know, doing what I was doing, teaching workshops and, and, and trying to get directing jobs. And through a series of circumstances, which are not important right at the moment, I got a job um, directing a feature film for Warner Brothers, okay? <clears throat> and that was a long story on how that all happened. That's not important. And I, the, the important part is, okay, now I'm directing this film. It's a low-budget film, but it's for a major studio, and I'm getting all the studio support, and everything's going fine. And I'm still doing my other, I'm still running workshops, I'm doing everything else I was, and I'm used to doing 12 things at the same time anyway, and that's what my life was like, and I would have clients I would work with. And I remember one meeting, and we're going into pre-production, where the producers from Warner Brothers sat me down and said, "Uh, Mark, you have to stop doing these other things. And I go, why? You know, one workshop was on Wednesday evening. I'll be free on Wednesday evenings. The other ones I could do on weekends. I'm free on weekends. No, 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 Mark. You have to. You are directing this film. Yeah, you have, that has to be your sole focus. And I remember resenting that. Going, well, I don't want to do that. I want to do these other things too. And ironically, I did shut down all the other things. But the irony is. Now we're deep into pre-production and I'm, we're working Monday through Friday and I have a stu- at the studio and I have my office and we're setting everything up. And I remember <clears throat> hitting the first weekend and everybody said, okay, it's Friday. Okay, see you on Monday. I go, Monday? Well, what are we doing Saturday and Sunday? <laughs> Nothing. Well, what am I going to do Saturday and Sunday? I was so used to working seven days a week, doing something every single day. Now I'd shut down all the other stuff. 
and now I didn't have that other thing. So I had to make a whole shift in my way of approaching the work. I mean, it was absolutely right. You know, I, I needed to totally focus on the film, and I, and I did, and all that. But it, that was a shift. So I think for anybody considering making that kind of change, think about what you're used to, and what your patterns are, and what you can handle, and what you can't handle, and what the day job is. And my feeling is if you get to the point and you say, I better quit the day job because this other stuff that I'm doing, which is my dream, is demanding so much of my time and attention. And I say, well, then it's time to quit. It's time to quit. What did you end up doing for the first few Saturdays and Sundays of that directing job? I don't know. It was, it was, it was hard. It was, it was really hard because there was nobody in the office, nobody I could talk to. You know, I'd go back and I'd read the script again and I'd make notes and I would do, do my own research or planning. But I'm the type of artist who loves to collaborate. I love other people being around. So I love being at the studio. I love working with the designers and I love working with the casting director. I loved working with all these people. And suddenly you leave me for two days and nobody to talk to. And I felt lost. Anyway, we could be home with my family, that's fine, but I wanted to do, the, I wanted to, I really literally, I think at that time, wanted to, why can't we work through the weekend too? Why do we have to stop for the weekend? But that's just my personality. It's a great story. Yeah. Oh. I like that. So then when that job was over, you knew, was that, was that your, your test? Right well, when, when, that, when, ironically, when that job was over, and now I had a, a terrific agency, not an agent, but an agency working for me, and I was reading a lot of scripts because I was directing a, a studio picture, and um, scripts were being sent to me to see if I was interested in it, and all of this, that, the other thing. And I was trying, the, the goal now is to set up the next project because this project is coming near an end. Set up the next project. And I, without, I can't mention the agencies and all that. Oh, but, that's fine. Um, my agent, big agency, said, you know, I, I said, let's set up the next project. And they said to me, <coughs> the ag agency said to me, uh, well, let's see how this movie does first. And I'll never forget this. And I was sitting there, and there were inquiries from other studios about things. And I said, well, can we set something? Let's see how this film does first. And I knew at that moment, because we're near, we're near the end of post-production, that the film was not going to do well for a lot of reasons. I knew that. It's not, it's not going to be like, wow, let's hire this guy even though the reactions to the footage and the reactions to the performances all were great and everything, I said, this is not gonna do well, and I knew why. And I said to the agent, I said, listen, if the film does really well, I don't need you. If it doesn't do well, you can't help me. I said, we have to do it now, and they said no. And I knew that that was the end of my relationship with that agency, and it was, and I switched agents. <clears throat> but the film did not do well. I did not get another job set up. And I was doing fine because the film paid well, 
But then that's only going to last so long. And it was months later, still trying to set up the next job, that I realized I have to do something to generate income. I can't go back and do theater now because it'll take me too long to set up a play that I'm going to direct at a local theater. I can't go back to television because I've been out of television for too long and it's going to take time. I need, in other words, I need income now. And so I started teaching. And that's when the, that was the beginning of the whole teaching thing that has led to where I am now. And then in between, you've written two books? <coughs> written two books. Two books, yep. wow. And there's another one in the works, which will be done someday. Yep. That's a great story. I'm sure it's a painful one at that time. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a great story. <coughs> it's very painful to be... Um, I'll tell you one thing that's very painful. At that studio, which is a big studio, and we were shooting on a lot that was not at that studio. So the times I would go to that studio and people would see me while we were shooting, they'd come up, oh, love your film, love your deal. I go to your dailies every day. I go. <laughs> and this, these are people who <clears throat> are not working on the film. They're just at the studio. They would just go to see the stuff that we had shot. So you have all that... <clears throat> that... Um, that build up, that sort of support and feeling like, wow, I'm, I'm doing well. I'm doing well here. All of that. And then during post-production, which is, I could tell you this whole story of post-production and how it all slowly fell apart. Um, sometimes because of distrust, sometimes because of sabotage by other people, and sometimes because of infighting inside the studio because there were studio executives who wanted the film to fail. And, all, and I ran into it. And at the very end of that whole journey with that studio, I was asked to meet with the head of the studio. He was a sweet guy, nice guy. We had a long talk about it. And he said, Mark, you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. I go, well, that doesn't help me at all. So it was very, it was very painful yeah. when you think, okay, now the career is starting to move. Now I'm moving and now I'm doing well and now they like the work and they like me and all that. But What is the truth behind the lie? The truth behind the lie. Okay, in um, autobiographical storytelling, one thing we're very strict about to a point is we are telling the true story. We're, we're sticking to the truth. We're sticking to the truth of characters, sticking to the truth of events. We're not making up stuff. And, but there are times when we actually fictionalize the truth, fictionalize the truth, in other words, lie, to get closer to a deeper truth. In other words, um, I'll give you an example. When I was developing um, A Bronx Tale, and A Bronx Tale is about young Colosio and his father and the gangster, uh, Sonny. And I said to Chaz, I need a story about your father you know, and we need some kind of story or event with your father that actually shows how he is dealing with 
the conflict between you that you have with this gangster and how he's dealing with the gangster. And he says, well, there isn't any story. There isn't any story like that. There isn't any event. He said, you know, when they got together or where he confronted the boy about it. I said, well, then we have to create one. And what we did is we created a story so we could get closer to the truth of how the father felt about this. Chaz knew how he felt about it, but by creating a story that really didn't happen, and he's seen that didn't happen, and in the film and in the play, there, these scenes are still there, these scenes are still there that didn't actually happen because they're there to serve a purpose. And the purpose of these, these fictional scenes or these fictional exchanges, and sometimes it even comes down to we will put words in a character's mouth that they never said, but those words reveal the truth of the character. We will, that's when we will fictionalize to get closer to a truth. And that's allowed. How do writers feel about that? About well, you're talking about the autobiographical part now. Sure. And first of all, the writer is the character who lived through this. Uh, usually, they feel fine about it because many times I'll say, "Okay, in this situation, if your father said this, um, let's let's say it's the little boy. This is not from Bronx Tale. Little boy, the father, and the mother." And let's say there's an argument going on between the little boy and the father. I say, okay, what, what happens if, if the mother was in that scene or heard that scene, what would she have said? Oh, it would have been awful. Really? What would she have said? And he will tell me. She would have said something like that. Um, give me an idea of what she would have said. She would have been horrified and furious. I say, fine. Let's put her in the scene. But she wasn't in the scene. I know she wasn't in the scene. But we're trying to get closer to what the dynamics are in this relationship. And if we put her in the scene, some, so many times we'll try, we'll experiment, we'll rehearse, put her in the scene and have her say that. And many times the writer, getting back to your question, will go, that's, no, that's good. That's good. That's what would have happened. That's who they are. And if I, can, if I can get to that point where the writer is saying, that's really who they are. That's the truth of who they are then I feel fine, and they feel fine. They feel good because they've, been, they've honored the truth of the characters, maybe not the truth of the events. What is a gap? The gap. The gap, okay. The gap. <laughs> not the store, and not a, not, not a not gap here. But I like the T-shirt, I like the, not only the T, I used to have a T-shirt, but I like, in London, you know, at the tube, mind the gap. Oh. <clears throat> when, I, when I started to realize Something very important. This is a long time ago when I was doing these autobiographical pieces and I was working on one or two of them. I forget which one, doesn't matter. When I realized that I knew what the events were. I knew what happened. They told me this is what happened, what happened, and what happened. But then I realized that something was missing in the telling of the story. And what was missing was from the protagonist the main character, the autobiographical character, I wasn't hearing what they really wanted to have happen, were hoping would happen and expecting to happen. In other words, if it's a, if it's a confrontation, uh, let's make it very simple, it's a guy telling a story and it's a story about him asking um, a beautiful young woman to go to the prom with him.
and he tells me what happens and what she said. And I realize what is missing in that story is what he thought was going to happen, what he hoped would happen, what he fantasized would happen. Now, in other words, his pursuit is to ask her to the prom and, want, and he wants her to say yes. Okay? Prior to telling the whole story, he need, we need to know what he thinks is going to happen, how he's going to pursue that, so that we are riding with that character inside his belief, inside his expectation, inside his desire, so we are riding with him. If, we, if he leaves that out, he just says, I'm going to ask her out, and we don't know how important this is. We don't know what's riding on it. We don't know what he's expecting if she says yes. We don't know what he's expecting if he says no. If we don't know that, half of the scene is gone. Half of the energy is gone. So what will happen? What I realized when I started exploring this is this is the way we all go through life. We all go through life, no different than this interview. All of us in this room, the four of us in this room, had an expectation of how this interview would turn out. And I can tell you right now, we were all wrong. It has turned out differently. That's all, just different. It is just different. So if we look at life as we move through life. We move through life, we have a pursuit, this is what we're going to do. We talk about going to lunch, I'm going to have this meal. Immediately I'll have ideas about what I think it's going to be like. And then I have to deal with life as it happens, which means it's going to be different. The thing you want to order will not be on the menu. The, the restaurant will not look like you wanted want it. You have to serve yourself. Well, yeah, then there's no waiter, <laughs> whatever. Things are different. So the gap, put it in the simplest of terms, is expectation versus result. What does the character expect? And then what is the result? And how is that different? And the truth is, we all live with the gap every single day. Every single day. It's part of our daily experience. This, this is what's going to happen. All of us in this room now, because we're in the middle of the afternoon, have an expectation of what is going to happen the rest of the day. I can tell you right now, it won't work out the way you think it's going to. Something different will happen, and that's life. So I realize in constructing these stories, these autobiographical stories, I needed to expose to the audience through the storyteller what the character wants and needs and why it's so important and what they are expecting very specifically with that naive narrator talking to the audience saying, I'm going to go ask her for the date. It's going to be great. It's going to be great because she's not going to expect that I'm going to ask her at all. And she's going to be so thrilled because she, I know she likes me. Now I'm just giving you a lot of information as what this character is imagining and dreaming will happen. And then as that story goes along and he gets to the point of asking her and he gets to the point of saying, ah, do you want to go to the, are you going to go to the prom? She says, oh yes I am. Oh great. Um, you want to go with me? Now we're at that point where he thinks she's going to be thrilled. And what does she say? Why would I do that? Now, big gap right there. Why would, now, 
If we don't know how much he's invested in this, that response will mean less. We have to be, we have to be carrying his investment into the scene with him. And so that we are hit by those obstacles as he navigates through that scene. It reminds me, I had a college professor that wrote on the chalkboard, expectations equals disappointments. Mm -hmm. Now that sounds a little negative, but I think in some ways if you, yeah, if you approach it like that, yeah. then maybe you wouldn't get your hopes dashed. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. I know I, I worked somewhere and I put that up and so I said, oh, that's so negative. And I thought, well, actually it's more of a realist. Yeah, <laughs> or, or think of it this way, flip it around. Imagine, Karen, that you have expectations for something, what's, what's going, what's something you want, something you're gonna do, a pursuit, and maybe it's the simplest thing of, um, I'll make it very simple. You're, ex you're, you're gonna cook a meal for you and David, you're gonna cook this meal. Okay. It's a meal you've never cooked before. Uh -oh. but, no, no. <laughs> uh -oh. But uh -huh. you have the recipe, you have all the ingredients, and your expectation is it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be gourmet, yeah. It's mm -hmm. going to be gourmet. Right. Okay, and you make the whole thing, and, it's all, and it looks good, and it smells good, and you serve it, and it is gourmet, and it's exactly what you wanted. Is that interesting? No. <laughs> the thing is, if, the, if we always get the expectations, or if our characters always get what they expect, it's not an interesting story because it has no relationship to life. That's true. It's too perfect, it's too planned. It probably wouldn't happen. But if the thing is, if you're fixing this gourmet meal and it looks good and it smells good, you know, and David's coming home and he comes home with Kentucky Fried Chicken, hey, I got dinner! <laughs> Now there's a gap. There is, right. Now there's a gap. And you go, oh, now disappointment. Right. See, in other words, so I think that disappointment thing is very accurate. And that's what we live with every day. It's not a negative, it's a reality. Very things true. do not turn out. And, and it doesn't mean things are worse. It just means they're different. It could be better. A gap is things turn out even better. Very true. If you were making that gourmet meal and you're going, this is, why am I doing this? Is this now your expectation is it's going to be a disaster because you've never made it before and you don't have quite the right ingredients and you're using olives instead of grapes or something and, and it turns out wonderful. Well, there's a gap. That's true. A good, good, uh, different, yeah, expectations, yeah, yeah. equals disappointments. So that's the gap. It's very important in not just autobiographical, but I think in any. To me, as I look at screenplays and stuff like that, every scene, there's a gap. Right. Sometimes line to line, there's a gap. <clears throat> Someone asks a question, do you want to go out tonight? The answer is, where did you put the cheese? <laughs> there's a gap. Do you want to go out tonight? I'm expecting an answer. I didn't get an answer. I got a question about where's the cheese. In fact, I never get to ask that question again. So those are little gaps. Life goes like that. We keep sort of navigating and working our way, fighting our way through a world that won't give us exactly what we want because that's just the way it works.